Welcome, everybody, to episode 18 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I am your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Greetings and salutations. Hope everyone is doing well. We hope you enjoyed your Christmas, and we hope that you enjoy your New Year's as it comes about, if you uh, are listening to this before New Year's. Um, Today, we are going to continue our conversation from last week regarding Evergreen State College um, and the events that took place there in 2017. Um, We'd only briefly scratched the surface for our listeners who uh, has already uh, um, listened through that podcast. And so we wanted to do a bit of a recap and then just kind of let the conversation flow from there because there's a lot, there's a lot of, uh, it's a very nuanced issue. It's a very um, intense issue. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of footage, a lot of articles. And it also happened uh, coming up on four years ago now. So there's been enough time that um, a lot of things have been rediscovered. And like, as I've been going through stuff, I've been learning things that I totally forgot actually happened and and stuff. And so uh, I guess to start um, with a brief recap, uh, Evergreen State College is located in Olympia, Washington, the capital of the state of Washington um, in a in March, March, uh, April and May of 2017, around that time in 2017, um, one of the professors there, uh, uh, Brett Weinstein, he uh, he created some controversy um, with his objection to a, um, a change to uh, one of the events that uh, Evergreen covers every year. Every year they do what's uh, since the, the early mid 70s have done what's known as a day of absence. And then um, starting, I think, in like 93 or 95, they started a day of presence that occurred a day or two after. And uh, quickly, what that is, is it's based off of a play that was done in the 60s where um, in the play, the, the members of the black community in a town, they would absent themselves from the town for a full day so that all the white folks could uh, basically do everything on their own and then understand what it was that the black community brought to the table, right? Um, Just as a way to like kind of protest and say like, we're worth something here. We're going to leave. So you have to take care of everything. And then you're going to know what it is that we can do for, we do, you know, how valuable we are to the community. And so the college uh, since the seventies has done the same thing. Um, All the people of color uh, and the faculty, the administration and the students uh, have absented themselves for one day. Um, And then they would, you know, come back to campus a day or two later. And, you know, uh, so far, so good. Like, I yeah, I support awesome. this idea all the way. That's great. Um, yeah. Where the controversy started to rise. And again, there's there's a lot that comes with the controversy here. Um, as you dig deeper into it, it how the, the person who runs the com- committee that puts this thing on every year, kind of how they um, framed the changes and the miscommunication there and the lack of um, being able to ask questions about it. So th- th- there are some issues. But basically, in 2017, the... Um, the leader of the committee that puts on the day of absence and the day of presence. Oh, sorry. The day of presence. Um, that was again, created in the, in the early nineties. And that was a second day after the day of absence where once, uh, the, the, the people of color came back to the campus, um, everyone, all whites and, and people of color got together and then they talked about what they learned. Essentially there's, they have workshops and stuff and they, they learn things and talk about, uh, diversity and, um, you know, the, the kind of things that are race and, and, and a lot of other issues and subjects, but they would get together and collectively talk about the kinds of things that they learned and noticed and whatnot. A, a day of healing, I suppose, might be another way to look at it. 
which is also nice. Like a, it's, it's a great thing to do. And um, but if I could interject real quick, yeah, uh, just in case anybody's wondering kind of the relevance of this or the context, um, if you find yourself in 2020 uh, asking what the fuck is going on with all this woke stuff, if it just doesn't seem to make sense, where's this going to lead? Um, you know, what's this all about? The evergreen situation is the entire thing in microcosm. So we have recently and closely seen this exact thing on a much smaller scale, and it is becoming a much larger carbon copy of all the stuff we're about to talk about happening throughout the country and you know globally right now. So it's uh, it's super relevant. Go ahead. It's super super relevant. Um, like with most of this stuff, because it's <clears throat> in part because it's charged, but also in part because it's uh, it's not simple. It's nuanced too, and so. Um, you know, part of what uh, Dan and I, what we're trying to do is wade through it with open eyes, of course, but also trying to take everything and say, okay, well, is this silly or is this good? Is this crazy or not? Why? What parts of it are crazy? What parts of it are good? What parts of it are dangerous? What parts of it um, should be explored more? Because there's a lot that goes wrong and there's a lot that I think actually needs to be talked about. Um and so, um, so yeah, so day of absence, day of presence. And again, to reiterate, um, staff, uh, students and faculty, administrators, what have you, um, of color, absent, them, absent themselves from the college. They voluntarily leave the college of their own volition. That's the, kind of the key here and what, what's been done. In 2017, it was decided that instead of that going on, they were going to uh, switch it. And um, it was asked of... Um, white folks that they should leave the college students staff faculty what have you um, allies doesn't matter everyone sh should leave and then people of color would have the college for the day and then there would be workshops on anti-racism and other things um off campus and then they would get together two days later for the day of presence um there's some confusion about because it, it was there's some confusion about the actual whether or not it was voluntary um, and Brett Weinstein in particular, when he uh, sent the email that really was the catalyst for all this, it didn't technically start it. There was other issues prior to it, um, but it did kind of catalyze the problem and kind of started the fire um, or the protests. He wrote a letter to all of the staff and faculty um, distribution list uh, in response to the note to, to the letter that was sent out about how things are going to change. And he was basically, and I, I we, had, if you want to listen, li, read or uh, listen to the letter, I, I read it out loud. Uh, both the 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 president of the committee's email and then Brett's email too. In response, basically, he was um, he was like, "Look, uh, when you initially had brought this up, there really wasn't a lot of room for discussion, and it didn't seem like it was all that voluntary." Um, and I, he's like, "I." There, there's a big difference between a group of people voluntarily absenting themselves from a space, in particular in a form of protest, and then there's versus telling a group of people that they need to leave. Whether voluntary, yeah, whether voluntary or not, and that's the key here is that it, it was, uh, at least uh, after he had, pro uh, he had sent his email in particular, it was made note that it was voluntary for sure. But there's still a difference, even with the voluntary aspect of saying, hey, we as a collective are going to leave voluntarily to protest. 
versus um, we're going to need you to voluntarily leave as a group. There, there is a difference there. And again, we kind of went over the, uh, some of the differences that uh, we, had, uh, we, we had both discovered while looking through this, but um, where the responsibility lies is, difference, um, is different. There's also the notion of um, if you as an individual or as a group decide to absent from a space, there's generally not going to be much um, resistance to that. Like, Maybe the maybe if you're a worker and you decide to absent from work, your owner might object to that. But um, in most situations, it's like okay, do your thing. When you tell someone to leave, though, whether you're saying it's voluntary or not, there is an inherent problem if you decide to say no because that creates the conflict, and you're given the option to say yes or no, as you should because it's voluntary. However. rejecting the request is always going to bring with it, bring with it the conflict and how that conflict is met is what created the problem near as I can tell. And so you might say to yourself, well, first off, you know, why would someone object to the switch? And it's like, well, on principle for, for the, um, the professor Brett, it was simply that asking a group of people to leave a space in particular, a space where free speech is, is by and large, needs to be allowed, which is a college, is is dangerous precedent. And I, um, you can debate that probably if, if you want. I, I think that he's correct in that. Like Those kinds of spaces need to have freedom of ideas and freedom of speech. That's where we learn and grow is in colleges, and it's essential that that occurs in college. So there has to be room for people to say no if they don't agree with something. With that being said... When someone does say no, as they should be allowed to do, whether they're actually a racist or they're a white nationalist or a white supremacist or um, they don't get the message in time to not realize that they, you know, they, they accidentally stay and they don't know it's a problem, or they just simply want to have a conversation about a better method to handle it, which is what Brett was trying to get at in his email. And it's pretty clear in the email. He's not like, I think you're wrong. I'm a racist. Fuck you. He's like, this on principle seems problematic to me. I would like to sit down and discuss other ways to handle this situation versus telling a group of people, regardless of, as he calls it, phenotype, but basically saying, regardless of whether they're white or not, to leave, let's talk about another way to approach the problems that you're trying to address because they're legitimate problems. Problems of inequity, racial inequity, racism, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And the response of the community of people of color like on campus was not to talk to him about it at all. In fact, it was immediate, very negative repercussions. You know, they accosted him outside of his, um, his, uh, his classroom. They yelled at him. They, um, took over the, the library and ha- held meetings. Um, at one point they, again, you could argue this, uh, legally and probably legitimately, but it does seem I mean, they, for the for all intents and purposes, held the president hostage. Um, they weren't really allowing him to leave, and he was kind of going along with them when they told him not to leave. Though I'm sure he could have just left if he wanted to. He was just trying to keep the peace, I think. And so they were. It looked like they were just kind of taking advantage of the situation and allowing in in exercising control as much as they could they could get from him. You know, um, by telling him to put his hands down and telling him he couldn't go to the bathroom and that he wasn't able to leave, even though I, I think he probably like I said he probably could have. Um, 
but the reaction is for me at least personally is the problem that I have with it is it it was pretty clear to me that the actual request that they were making when they made the change was get in line with our voluntary request or there will be consequences that's how it came across and which which is obviously an issue well, I think it's clear that the whole thing really at its heart is a power play. And yes, by their own definition, um, their philosophy is is power first. The power was, dynamic in society is the most important thing and the only thing above your own humanity. And that is not that is not hyperbolic or conjecture. This is the type of things that they're saying is the most important thing in in society, in the world, is this power play. And in that moment, they were flexing as much as they could to see how much power that they could wrangle away from this college. Uh, it turns out it was quite a bit. Yes, and it's, it's an interesting, you bring up an interesting point about power. And so the first thing I'll say to it is that for any of our listeners who are um, either familiar with critical race theory um, who are familiar with critical theory, um, if you, you've gone a little bit deeper, um, intersectionality touches on it a good amount. Um, postmodernism is is very, very heavily ba- power-based, and that's really where critical race theory and postmodernism, one of the many ways in which they overlap is that critical race theory just kind of borrow the, the power dynamics that, uh, from, uh, from postmodernism. Or if you're not really into any of this stuff and you've just read right red white fragility um that'll give you a good entry level uh, idea of kind of what we're talking about um white fragility in particular does talk a good amount about power, power dynamics but the other thing that it does that parallels to this is that it um it uh seemingly randomly if you're not familiar with the the background like the theory the academic theory behind it but there's like six or seven times in the book where it um robin d'angelo will just break down and, and try and dismantle the idea of individualism which you kind of talk about above your own humanity there's power in, in group identity politics it, it goes along with that but um this is sort of all in that same vein right it, it's this notion of um of power of group power and the removal of the individual right they, they all kind of they're, they're all very heavily intertwined um but yeah, it, and I also think, too, with the power, and this is, again, this is where the nuance comes in. So this isn't just a bunch of disaffected students who feel very passionately about protesting and want a little skin in the game and don't want to be poor college students eating ramen. So they're going to try and exercise the power they can. And then once they get in the real world, they're going to grow up and become functional adults. It's more than that, right? Um they're actually bringing up legitimate issues. Like there are legitimate racial inequities um, in the world. There are legitimate racial dynamics that are, are problems and that we do need to solve. And so they're coming at this with trying to solve legitimate problems with this lens that is completely power-based, that are completely, but it, it's, um, it's primarily power-based. And not only do they feel that it's the right way to view the world, they feel that it's the morally correct way to view the world. And because it's power-based and it's moral-based, anyone who does not agree is not moral and is therefore trying, is power-hungry and trying to steal the power. Like that, that's also part of the key is that um, 
and that's I think that's why you see currently in our in our, in our current sphere, and you see it if you look into um, the dynamics that happen in Evergreen, and this is partly how it um, it parallels what we see now, is that there is no argument there there are no arguments to be had, right? If if you try and argue, you're an epithet, a bad one, right? You're you're a bad person, and why is that? Um, you know, why is it that uh, to, to, to take this to Evergreen? Um, why is it that Brett was immediately called a racist with his email? Um, there's near as I can tell, there's two reasons. Um, one is that he was called a racist because people of color who read the email saw the racism and said it was racist. And therefore, it becomes racist because whites aren't as attuned to racism because we don't experience it which is, again, in line with critical race theory. Um, so if you feel lost by that logic, it's because it's part of the theory. Um, and so white people wouldn't see the racism, but this is what people of color experience daily. And so they're attuned to feeling the racism. So they see it because of what he's trying to say and what he's trying to stop them from doing. And therefore, it's real. And so they have a legitimate gripe. Or it's because he disagrees with them. And so what do you do when someone disagrees? You you, you silence them. You're and either what are, with us or you're against us. Exa right, exactly, exactly. And I don't, there may be a middle ground there, but I don't see it. And the reason I don't see it is because of what he said. Um, and I also have a hard time believing that different groups of people alone are inherently able to, based on immutable characteristics, understand certain ways of the world that others can't understand. Um, there may be some truth to that. I don't see it. And so I'm more than happy to have a have a discussion with someone um, to try and figure that out. Um, and the reason I don't understand that is mostly because it, it seems it seems too tribalistic, right? Like your tribe can only understand things because of who your tribe is. And I couldn't possibly understand it. So we have no way to dialogue about something. Does yep. that make sense? And yeah. so it at that point, should we even dialogue at all? Because if you interpret something differently than I do and your way is right because of your lot in life or because of your skin tone or um, how you were born or whatever, um, then there's not really an argument to be. It isn't. It's a one sided issue. And again, that goes well, back we're to, not going to ask you how you feel about it. We are going to tell you what to do. Yeah. And, and that so is operationally what is happening. And. Again, to kind of, and we try, I, I try and come back to this quite a bit when we talk about critical race theory and, and the issues that come up. That isn't to say that there isn't legitimate problems, because a lot of the, there are, underneath all of this, there are actual problems. Absolutely. And what I feel like is happening is that from those problems, an ideology or a theory, or it's, I, I think it, it, an ideology um, has been created to solve those problems, which is great. The, the, the issue is that it's too narrow. And so it only allows for certain ideas to take or certain lines of thought to take hold in any dissension from that is immediately excommunicated. And so there isn't there is no freedom of ideas, which means it's like you said, it's our way or the highway, right? That's sort of that's sort of a mentality, which doesn't mean that there isn't problems. It just means that the way that, that people go about it is there are, I think there are better ways. It's an um, ineffective way to address those problems. Exactly. And, and that's why I think the, the, the first um, idea that I brought up is necessarily um, incorrect, is that not that there isn't, as I, I just don't see how 
that has to be correct, that there's automatically racism in what he said because people of color perceived it that way. Um, and this is probably a tangent we can go on later, but that pushes it into the subjective experience over the objective experience, like the lived reality of the lived experience over the objective reality um, or the, the objective experience. And um, if you that creates problems as well, because that's essentially what this is, is like our lived experience is that this was a problem. Therefore, it's real. And there is some truth to that, because how we actually view the world through our own personal lens is a subjective experience. And to some degree, it is actually real. But that doesn't mean it's the only reality. Right. Um, I had heard someone give an example once. Uh, let's say you're walking down the street and someone gives you a really weird look. Right. And it makes you feel really, really uncomfortable. And so you're like, that person's a creep, right? Um, or may, may, maybe that person is actually looking at the person behind you and, and or they also look at that person the same way and that's just how their face rests. So they have no ill intent whatsoever, right? Maybe they're just a weird looking person who's got a weird resting face. And so the experiences are different. So what you may experience may be different than what actually occurred in the large body of this person looking at different people. And that doesn't mean that your experience is invalid. It just means that it isn't the whole and, and, and that you're wrong. It just means that your individual experience isn't enough to know the full story. It's just a part of the story. Right. And it's important to not lose sight of that. Um, which this is, has been known for a long, long time. Yeah. Individual accounts are uh, not particularly reliable when it comes to the full story of any given situation. Exactly. Uh, you know, just just ask police investigators. That's why they don't just talk to one witness and say, "Okay, we got it. This is what happened." Well, right, 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 exactly. And so, so it seems more likely to me that what happened is that this change was requested and or made. Decision was made to, to change the the day of absence, day of presence. And on the surface, it seems like a reasonable request. It's like a lot of things, it's you give it more thought and you're like, wait a minute, maybe there's a better way to do this. Um, someone objected to it, but I don't think the individuals who put this all together, A, expected anyone to object, and B, were like they, I don't think they were prepared for what to do if someone objected. And that isn't surprising to me because when humans interact, I don't think that generally they prepare for what to do if someone says no. It's, it's a given that you have a right to say no because we live in a free country where we have free, now at least we, we, yeah we, we have <laughs> what, say, now at least yeah right where we have the freedom to say no but it, with big decisions we tend to think through what what do we do if I ask you to do something and you say no right how am I going to respond to that um, I don't think that they really did that and so and the reason I think that is because or may, or maybe they did they just their whole maybe the whole time they're their thought was, if anyone objects, we're just going to shut them down completely. And it's easy to shut someone down by calling them a racist and then protesting. Well, I mean, by by uh, you know definition of their philosophy, if you disagree, then you are automatically the enemy. Yes. They feel that they have all of the answers. You need to listen to them. We're not going to listen to you. You've had the power for so long. It's our so turn. Yeah, it's our turn, and you do not get to talk. Mm -hmm. And, and if, it's, if that's it's mostly the case, that latter then... part that I have a problem with. That's the, yeah. the latter part. Um, I understand the case for, you know, there's been an imbalance racially in 
say the U.S. for a long time. Okay, like I, I'm not discounting that. I never, never will. Like there, there has been. I think yeah. it's very clear. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be agreeing on the fact that there are legitimate racial inequities um, in in the country. Um, I'm not entirely clear if the answer is a power reversal. I, I like I, I. That's a complicated problem that I, I can't say on the surface is just correct. Like there's more to it than just we just give power to people of color and then the problem is solved. I don't think that that's usually the the answers aren't that simple. Nor do they work out the way that you want them to, because we're human and humans make mistakes. And so just giving people power is probably not going to work out the way that we expect it. There's going to be un, un, unforeseen consequences that'll probably be worse than what people want. Anyways. Um, yeah. And so it, it's the not being able to talk that I have a problem with. The lack of open dialogue is the issue. And if, if you listen to a lot of, or basically all of the dialogue, um, recorded dialogue from the event where Brett is talking, it's extremely clear that he is more than willing to engage in dialogue, to ask questions, to explain himself, to try and explain the miscommunications, and to try and find a resolution. Like there isn't any malice from him. He's not like, nope, you're just wrong. Be, you know, it, it, he's like, well, sometimes he'll say that you're they're wrong, and I'll try and explain why, but. He's literally just interested in trying to have a discussion and he just they just there's multiple points in the recordings where he's like, do you want to hear my answer? They're asking him questions and he's like, well, do you want to hear my answer? And they're like, no, fuck you. And it's like, <laughs> listen to us, yell at you and then acquiesce. And it's like, that's not how relationships work. And, you know, and some people might argue, well, you know, they have a right, not only do they have a right to protest, but they have a right to ask for change and to level playing fields and to make things more equitable. And it's like, yes. Yep. That's all true. But hurling epithets at someone due to what is clearly a misunderstanding and then not allowing them to explain themselves is not the way to go about solving the problem. And just to remind the listeners, these people that came after uh, Professor Brett Weinstein, none of them had ever even met the man. All Most, of yeah. Brett's actual students were trying to get his back because they knew him. So a bunch of strangers decided they know everything about Brett and they're going to shut him down. That's what happened. Go ahead. Yeah, they. they um, I think the term is straw man, right? They... Um they uh, take what they think they know about him based on what people had told them and then they apply it to him and then what he said he noticed as he was ex talking to individuals is that they're like first off a lot of them didn't know and a lot of them were white a lot of the protesters were white they were told um, and you can actually hear it a bit in, in some of the uh, the recordings um, but the, the leaders there were a couple of uh, different individuals of color um, basically had all the, the white allies doing everything for them um, and they were interesting. They were making jokes at different ju uh, junctures about how the whites had brought them food and water and all those kinds of things. But um, but a lot of them, he, he had said, mentioned that they didn't know exactly what they were protesting about. They were just given a sheet of paper to, to read and chant from and that they found it interesting. One or two of them said that they found it interesting that when they talked to him, he wasn't really quite what they were told he was, which is sounds about right. If you've, if you've ever listened to Brett Weinstein at all. Um, 
he's far and away not what he's often portrayed as. Like I, I could close. <laughs> I could get it if if the individual who had protested this was not Brett, but was um, maybe a much more of a conservative firebrand. So someone like Charlie Kirk or Ben Shapiro, who were both very conser- both conservative firebrand individuals and very opinionated. I would understand more if they objected to one of these two saying something. They probably wouldn't have said it as diplomatically as Brett did also, but I, I could get it because they say controversial things. They, they're conservative and um, you know they're much more uh, rude with their language. Right. But you're, you're talking to an individual who wrote a very he was very firm in his email, but he was like, look, here's what I have a problem with. It's the it wasn't even a problem. It wasn't about race for him. He's like, it's the principle of what you're doing is the problem I have. And I, I would like to discuss this, but we weren't really given an option to. And so now I'm stuck in a position where I fundamentally disagree with the the premise of what you're doing, regardless of what you're doing it for. It's problematic to tell people they have to leave a space, in particular, a space on a college campus of all places. In particular, based on one's skin color. Exactly. uh, Among any other thing. Right. And he never mentioned this, but the the, the question is often asked in these situations. It's like, could you imagine what would happen if the white students were like, hey, everyone who's black has to leave college for the day (laughs) so we can protest something yeah. whatever it doesn't matter but um or you know like every, every woman has to leave so that men can celebrate men's day or something like something like that like it, it obviously doesn't work in the reverse and it sounds super silly which isn't to say that it is when you uh, have people of color doing it it's just simply that the logic is inconsistent and it, it creates problems down the road as you have people groups absent from more and more spaces and that's really the key here is that people aren't allowed in certain spaces and it, it, you know, you claim it's voluntary, but socially it's not. And that, that's the big issue is that socially it's not voluntary. Um, and, and I, I also I want to touch on because um, you mentioned logic. I think it's important to understand that this movement is not interested in logic. No, it's if fundamentally actually to, interested in the antithesis of that. Yeah. If you try to make sense of what they're doing as a means of understanding it you're going to find that to be a futile exercise because they are not interested in the merits of their ideas or the logic of their ideas or supporting those ideas with anything that is intellectually sound. That's not how they operate. Yeah, and in certain um, in certain parts of, uh, of the theory, of social justice theory, let's say, um, the intention is to be... Uh, illogical like that's actually the point um and i'm not being hyperbolic about that i mean that like legitimately that's from from the theories itself from the actual academics who write up the theories behind all the stuff that we see that is actually the point um one of the ways in which uh critical race theory uh, critical theory it which it would be the umbrella above critical race theory, I suppose. Um, but we, I guess we could just call it social justice theory writ large. Um, one of the ways that it uh, operates is to subvert or dismantle or disrupt 
things that are normal or considered normative in society. Um, and that's broadly or simply, I guess, it's a pushback against what we consider things to be normal because what is considered to be normal is broadly speaking white among other things yeah. right so um and that that's a big push is that okay well white men control things and so the frame of reference with which the u.s in particular or say um the western way of knowing or western capitalism functions is based off of um the people who have power which are white men straight white men in particular and so because they have the power, they disseminate how they view the world onto the people. And that becomes the social norms that we embody. Right. Um, so if you want to protest that, what do you do? You do the opposite of those things. So anything that is considered normal is by virtue normal for white straight men. So the way to subvert that is to do things that are not normal. So if logic is in reason are foundational principles of Western, um, you know, thinking, then you would then do things that are illogical, which is why a lot of the arguments don't make sense. Um, it's also why instead of having an argument, someone will shut you down by calling you a name because to actually engage in a dialogue is in and of itself a normal thing to do. And that's why I'd mentioned at the top that I, I thought that maybe it's possible that their reaction was pre-planned if someone did um, at the school, if the reaction of, of the protesters, if, if they, if someone did um, reject their decision, protest their decision, they would respond by doing this is because it is the non-normative way of doing things. Because the normal thing to do is to say, okay, let's talk some more about your point. Uh, on good faith, I'm not going to assume that you're a racist in part because nothing you said is inherently racist. Like it isn't obvious that he said anything racist at all. Um, maybe if someone wanted to dig deep enough, there is a, someone out there, an academic in particular, who could probably find unconscious biases because that's a thing and that's what you look for. And so you find them because you look for them. But good luck with Brett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Historically, well, he's pretty unimpeachable on that front. No, very, very true. But that's, that's what you look for. You're looking yeah. for it. So you find it. That, that's kind of how it works. You need to find it because it, it, it's it, um, what does Robin D'Angelo say? It, it's not that race. It's not. The question is not did race. Um, was this racist? The question is, where did it occur? So it's assumed that it occurred. So let's find it. Right. Yeah. Um, how did racism manifest? Right. In, in this situation. Exactly. And so in um, every situation, in every situation. Correct. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, the, the question, you know, how, how someone would normally approach this is they would say, okay, well, let's, let's see what he has to say. Let's talk to him and let's, let's either find out if he's just batshit crazy, which you do that by letting someone talk a lot. The more someone is allowed to talk, the more crazy they're going to sound if their ideas are crazy. Right. Yep. Um, or maybe he's at least partially or actually correct. So let's find a compromise or let's find a better way to handle what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a statement. Let's find a better way to do it. And instead of doing that, they did they, they did the opposite of that, which was to, um, depending, like I said, protest, riot, cause actual structural damage to uh, like ten thousand dollars of damage to the college. Um, in some cases, um, a, troll the school to try and hurt people with bats. It, there's reasonable evidence that it was to actually try and find Brett, but um, I'm not entirely sure 
of the validity of the, there's not really enough evidence to say that it, for sure they were looking for Brett going from car to car looking for Brett with bats. But it, it's reasonable that that was who they were looking for. It um, was a volatile situation, to yeah. say the least. Um, and the police advised Brett to not show up on campus that day they couldn't for his him. safety. Yeah. Um, I didn't pull the tweet up but there was a tweet I, I, I just I forgot I, to do it but there was a tweet by by I believe it was an actual professor um, who literally stated during during the, this whole issue that someone needs to find Brett's wife and I believe the term was that was used was in string her up string her racist ass up which I think is wow. a, like a lynching reference, yeah, even though she, even though Brett's wife wasn't a part of the issue, she was actually either out of town or out of the country. I think she was actually out of the country with a group of students um, like on site in like Ecuador or something like doing because they're biologists, ev evolutionary biologists. They do a lot of uh, work in the in in, in nature. Um, yeah, his wife, uh, for, if anybody's not familiar, is Dr. Heather Hying. She was also a professor also, there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there was that. Um I'm not I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure the uh, the professor who said that not only was that tweet not taken down for inciting violence, which I, I, is 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 interesting to me, but she also I believe it was the same professor who also resigned after this um, citing uh, as part of her resignation stress from the online harassment she received. Hmm. Um, which is if if that is true, it's a little ironic considering the harassment that she put forth online but yeah. um not that not that it to excuse the harassment she received I'm, i actually was when i heard that she had resigned in part because of the harassment she received it didn't surprise me because people online are terrible but i was also very saddened by it um i don't really like it when i don't i, I don't really have i don't really like the online vitriol that occurs people you know armchair whatever the term is where people sit behind twitter and like say rude shit i don't understand keyboard it. warriors yeah. keyboard warrior there we go and it's really upsetting when these kinds of things devolve. And then like, I, I, I can imagine that I actually seen some of the emails that the professor I'm thinking of in particular received. And I mean, they were just, they were nasty emails, just super, super racist, super inappropriate. And it's like, seriously, that doesn't help issues at all. Like, even Not if you all. disagree with what she's doing and what the, cause she was, she was a member of the, of the people, uh, students of color who were leading the protest. She was one of the faculty who was on board with them and helped do a lot of this. And in fact, you, um, I'm going to ask uh, um, Benjamin Boyce when he's on, but I believe she was arguably like the architect of all of this. Um, mm. That still doesn't mean that she, people should do that, say that kind of shit. Focus on the ideas, not the person, right? Well, I mean, if, uh, if you want to make sense of the situation, I say don't think about the the ideas and what makes sense and what works for everybody. But if you look at it again through the uh, the lens of power, then these are the things in today's society that will get you power. Online bullying, um, shutting people down, all that. If all you want is power, all this shit makes a lot more sense. Yes, it does. And... Power it's intoxicating. I mean, and it's. A, yes. I, I will say, I don't believe it to be a grand cabal of people who are working down a fifty-seven step plan to take over the United States and or revolutionize or anything like that. Um, I'm sure there are some plans, but I think that a lot of the people that get involved with this, um, 
this is of course conjecture, but it seems to make sense that once you get a taste of power, it is fucking intoxicating. So the people that that uh, stood up, the was it uh, Jamil B or whatever Jamil that cat, ba Jamil Bay, yeah, yeah. Um, once he once people start listening to him and doing what he says, goddamn, that feels good. Yes. Let's keep going with that, and don't don't fuck with this logic stuff. That's that's not helping the train at all. I want uh, people need to listen to me. That feels good. So, so I, it's, I have some, something interesting about that that I wanted to to, to speak to. Um, so one of the things Jamil in particular had mentioned, and and uh, for those who haven't seen any of the, any of the footage, um, they uh, Jamil is a is a um, I believe they like to be referred to as a black femme, but they're a, a trans or a, a queer black individual and i'm not sure what pronouns they they prefer to use so i'm going to use they because I, I don't know um and i i don't you know i don't want to cause any controversy about misgendering or, or what have you but um one of the things that jamil says when the, everyone gets together and the light a lot of the people get together and in the library um is that uh jamil complains about all this emotional labor that's unpaid that they and the other individuals who are like running the other students who are running this are doing and then they they you know blame the uh, the president and the the police the police chief and and brett and white people and everyone for all this emotional labor and that doesn't say that there isn't again like with all of this that doesn't say that there isn't emotional labor but jamil voluntarily chose to be part of the student committee that sat down with George to go over the president, George Bridges, to go over all of this stuff. These individuals voluntarily decided to take the the mantle of leading this charge and to take the power, as it were, to move forward. And so, yes, it's emotionally taxing. Yes, it's physically taxing and they're probably exhausted and they're not getting paid and they probably are hungry. I don't know if they're eating. At one point they had pizza ordered and I don't blame them because I would want pizza too because pizza is good. But and I'd probably be hungry doing all this stuff. They were working all day. Like part of it I get because the, Jamil probably does feel emotionally and physically drained. However, like I found it very ironic that um, that they essentially blamed everyone but themselves for all of this work that they're doing and they voluntarily chose it now to, to be fair to, to the flip side of that is well who else is going to do it but they're protesting so someone is going to take up this mantle someone is going to voluntarily take the responsibility and the power that comes with it to lead this charge and whoever does that is is in part because they're choosing that is takes that responsibility that's their burden to bear and yep. <laughs> we see this a lot with with the victim mentality of no one takes responsibility. And that isn't to say that there isn't other people that actually do things to marginalized communities and then should bear the responsibility for that injustice. But it also doesn't mean that marginalized communities are powerless. And this is an example of that. Taking the power. You, you, you make the point that uh, Jamil in particular, um, you know, 
could have most definitely been sort of uh, drunk on that power a bit and kind of ran with it. Uh, there, I'm sure there's a case to be made for that. It, it, when, when you have that kind of power, it's hard not to abuse it, right? Um, and you do see instances of that in the video. I'm not going to go into them, mostly because I don't have them fresh in my mind. But as I watch through the live, the, the footage, it, you, you can tell that um, the individuals that are speaking, the students that are leading this, that they're, you know, they're they're definitely utilizing a bit of the power, right? And you, you can see, you can see them do it in, in different ways. Um, Big time. And uh, but to then turn around and then shirk that responsibility and and put the blame on on the president for making them do this. It's like that doesn't it's, work. You don't get your me, cake and eat it too. Like there is some right. culpability on the president. Like I don't want to absolve the old white president of any culpability here too, because George Bridges definitely deserves a whole shit ton of culpability. Not only for not for doing what he can for the students to help to help with their issues, but also what he didn't do for all of his teachers, Brett and Heather, um, and also the other professor that resigned, who also sued the college because of the vitriol that they received and the harassment that they received. Like he just kind of fucked up all around. But yeah. those are all well, separate things. Bridges turned out to be a uh, a weak and impotent leader. Yes. That man is not the character that you want to lead people. You know, the, as far as um, what you're talking about, you know, blaming all the work that you have to do because you're processing, it really sounds to me like uh, I'm going to burn down your house and charge you for the can of gasoline I used. Yeah, because you it's made like, me look, do this. Yeah. Uh, look, you <laughs> if you choose to take that up, take up that responsibility, then uh, fucking man up or woman up and just get it done. Yeah. Don't don't bitch about it. That it's weakness of character. No, it very much is. And it's like you there are you can take personal you, you can take personal responsibility and still have other people to blame, too. It isn't a one, an all or nothing. It isn't like if I take this on, you're to blame, period. I have nothing or vice versa. It's like there, everyone has a part to play. Yep. You know, and I mean, hell, e even even Brett, who I think by and large was probably actually. I understand why he did what he did. He still has a responsibility to bear, and I think he's bared it fairly well um, for his actions. Like he was at a decision point where he could have just shut up and said nothing. And honestly, there's an argument to be made that what he'd that should have been the thing that he did. That was the right move to make. There is a legitimate argument to be had for the fact that he should have just been silent and moved forward. Sure. And, the reality is he's just not that kind of guy. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is there there are people where that is not A, their mentality, or B, there are times that people decide to stand up. Yeah. And he identified in his eyes what he thought was rationally a problem with the fundamental ethics of how the committee that pushed this, this change, was acting. And he's like, I think this is a problem. Here is why. And he did it I, what I felt was in a, a fairly respectful way. Like he should have the ability to object to something. That doesn't make him a racist. That doesn't make him wrong. That doesn't make him a problem that deserves to be fired. It just means he objects. We should be able to disagree on things and then talk about it and come to, hopefully, a, a position of unity. That's how societies actually work. That just sounds way too civilized. Okay, so let's let's keep going with the story, um, just so we can. So, so yep. we've gotten to the point where um, the day of absence got switched up. Yep. Brett wrote his email. Got a lot of pushback. Now we're protesting. Protesting. Um, there, there, yep. There's a there's a meeting that's called um, in uh, 
in the light in the it's like a i think it's called the library or like the uh library organization room or something it basically is just a big room where you there's i didn't see any books in it so i think it's like above the library it's like a conference room basically a really big conference room um four or five hundred students showed up the president and a lot of senior level faculty showed up they had um a guy named ken who i think was like a on-site security guard um it was just a, a really huge black dude standing in the back with his arms crossed like you would see in a movie where he's like protecting somebody um and so i think he was i never could find out who he was i want to ask benjamin that too because one of the uh the student leaders actually calls him out and is like hi ken and then everyone laughs so the students clearly know him okay but he's i don't think he's a professor um and so i just by his stature and by how he was standing and where he was standing i, I think he was a, a like an on-site security guard but and then they had the um the police olympia police chief or like the maybe it was like the the police chief of evergreen or something they had her show up in civic 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 uh, civilian clothes without a gun which she actually almost didn't do um i wasn't really aware of this until i heard someone mention it but uh, people who know who are either in law enforcement or members of know people who are law enforcement that's apparently a big no-no is showing up to a a protest area um where things are agitated without your weapon especially when you're especially when you're asked there like i i thinking about it it kind of makes sense but they she was specifically asked to show up without a gun um and so and she did and um the uh, and brett actually showed up he had heard that um he could show up safely basically um but a bunch of his students showed up with him to help basically be there to protect him um and a protest ensued you know and it was a loud protest where people got to talk and people were tried to talk and were shut down um some people of color who were on Brett's one of that were Brett's students talked and they were shut down by other people of color who told them that they didn't understand what and what it was they were talking about and that they were um, basically brainwashed into thinking that Brett was right and and this kind of stuff it was very interesting um, and but well it was loud and they said a lot of things and they were even contradictory it was just a t- what you would see at a typical protest people are yelling about problems they're sometimes making nonsensical ar- arguments sometimes they're making legitimate arguments. Um, they yelled at George Bridges a lot. Yeah, interspersed with a lot of small power plays that yes. were all successful. Um, Never yeah. once were they reined in. No. The, the president of that college acquiesced in every single instance. Yes, in every single instance. It was actually quite dangerous because there was only one entrance or exit, and uh, which is problematic. I actually don't know how that's up to fire code because it's on like the third floor and people can't jump out windows, I don't think. And so I'm pretty sure that's like a fire code violation, but Olympia is not in King County like we are. And so um, I'm not sure of the validity of that. The the county codes may be different, but be that as it may, it was it was naturally hostile for the president, for the police chief, for Brett and for any of the senior staff to show up to this because they only had one way to exit. And so if the protest, the people who were protesting this didn't want them to leave, they wouldn't be able to leave. Unless they jumped out of windows, even if they were peaceful, which they by and large were peaceful. Um, well, they didn't really show too much threat of physical violence near as I could tell. They yelled loudly and they talked a big game, but there wasn't a lot of like, I'm going to come over there and hold you down or like, if you move, we're going to beat you up. There's nothing like that. No overt threats. Um, it's still dangerous. And um 
so yeah, so that occurred after that. Uh, Brett left with some of his students. He wasn't stopped leaving, but he did talk to um, some protesters on his way out, like after he had exited the building um, and had some conversations. He said that the con- and you can listen to the conversations. They go decently well. He's pretty level headed and he stays calm. Some people are actually interested in what he's saying, and then he gets shut down by louder protesters who tell everyone who's talking to him to leave and to not listen to him. Um, and so that you know, which is key into, to the yeah. strategy. Yes, it, of, we, we again, don't want to hear what you have to say, and we're not going to allow anyone else to hear it either. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And that's that's one of the big parallels to what we see today is that um, there isn't a lot of diversity of thought. Right. There, there's 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 a, a what is now essentially a mainstream way to think about things, about um, inequities in our in our country, about how race is thought about, uh, about how just social dynamics in general are thought about. And if you disagree with that, it's a huge problem. And it seems baffling to me that. The average human can't sit back and 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 realize that maybe human-to-human interactions are slightly more nuanced than that. Doesn't matter. That's a human problem. This is a power problem. Shut up and listen. Yeah, and and that, that's really the confusion that I have. And I'm, I'm excited to get further along in um, Benjamin Boyce's uh, YouTube documentary about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm on episode 9 or 10, and there's 30. So... Where 22. I hit he may have trimmed it is, down. Actually, I was uh, watching some today. So it's 22 okay. currently. 22, okay. <laughs> I'm on number um, 15 myself. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so I've only gotten as far as him talking about and then seeing footage of after he has left the initial big get-together. I kind of know what happens afterwards. Like, um, you know, there, there's some more protests over the next few months. Graduation is moved off campus, like 50 miles. I believe it took place at um, Tacoma Memorial Football Stadium, like an hour away, 50 miles away or something. But um, mm. I'm not sure on that. But it, w- it was moved off campus and uh, because there was legitimate um, uh, protests and, and things and, and more concerns that they um, there would be uh, unrest. He, uh, Brett and Heather... And the other professor um, all sued the college. There was like a Senate hearing. Um, the police chief resigned and took a job as a as a standard like uh, street cop in another city. So she like basically demoted herself because she didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just crazy situation. I remember at the time thinking this seems out of control like people are bringing up legitimate issues but they're going about it way the wrong way as near as i can tell um and i remember hearing that pe- people in the news were like ah oh, this is just a college issue this happens at colleges all the time like college is where you go to find yourself and it's where you go to protest like a, like this in the 60s it was the same thing ignoring the fact eh, that in the 60s just there being was kids yeah ignoring the fact that in the 60s there were legitimate flag burnings and riots and not that i have a problem with flag burning itself but um it, it, as far as i'm aware it's still legal and it probably should and it should be but yep. um the, the, it's a big protest is my point and um if people feel like they need to burn a flag to protest then more power to them but it did spill out of the colleges then too but um people like no this is just going to stay in the college they're going to basically they're going to go into the real world and then 
real world and being an adult is going to check them and put them in their place and they're going to have to grow up. And that's not really what happened. And now we're seeing um, similar um, things manifest themselves uh, today. Everywhere. Uh, every, yeah, yeah. It's um, one thing uh, I'll touch upon and then we can kind of go into some of the stuff that I know you want to talk about. Um, just to, just to give an example, um, Brett, we talked about last week, but Brett had done an, a, a talk one year after the fact called How the Magic Trick is Done. And one of the things that he recommended or one of the things he um, said is that uh, that he foresaw is what he called a program of radical reparations. And what he meant by that, because he went on to explain it, I'm going to paraphrase it because I forget his exact wordage, verbiage. But what he was basically saying is that um, at all levels of analysis, um, racial inequality will be scrutinized. And it will, he sees the progression of it being that if there is an, a racial inequity, like a, a not an equality amongst the races, so it, whatever, it will be deemed bad and it'll need to be corrected. That was his concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so versus like how we think of reparations where everyone gets money, essentially, though there are other arguments for reparations, um, investing in communities and uh, free college for, for the black community, what have you. But um, his concern was that he w- you would see a top-down um, movement of anytime you look for an inequity and you see it, it is automatically a problem regardless of the reason. And then it has to be fixed. And so one of the things I actually saw an article and I had sent you the article last week. I just forgot to email you back about it, Dan, um, was about vaccine distribution. And it yes. remind, so it reminded me of what I think he was referring to. And uh, in the article, um, there are a couple of different people who had a couple of different the, uh, the uh, author interviewed a couple of different professionals, um, academics and virologists and other things, but doctors and stuff. But um, one of the doctors in particular had. Um, had, had made a, a, a comment about um, how he felt that um, old older people should not get the vaccine first. And the reason he felt that is because older people are predominantly white and because they're white, they've basically been raised to live longer because of their privileged status and essential workers are more likely to be people of color. And so that this will giving the vaccine to essential workers will level the racial playing field. That was his reasoning. Mm -hmm. Um, Now there's tied within this is the actual argument of, do you give the vaccine to essential workers or to old people? And that's a legitimate argument. That's separate from saying that because most old people are white, they should not therefore be given the vaccine because of their whiteness. And instead, it should be given to essential workers because they're people of color. Now, if you decide that essential workers should get the vaccine because statistically it'll bear out that it's actually better to do, and it also happens to be that it'll help people of color because more of them are essential workers, that's fine. But to solely base it on race is a problem it is racist it's actually (laughs) racist yeah right exactly um so here's the direct quote from the individual he's an expert and this is ironic too he's an expert in ethics and health policy 
at Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania. So it's funny to me that he's an expert on ethics, given what he's saying. But older populations are whiter. Society is structured in a way that enables them to live longer. Instead of giving additional health benefits to those who already had more of them, we can start to level the playing field a bit. Yeah, well, okay, I got, I got an example that's close to home. It's in a similar vein. Uh, you may or may not have seen the news uh, a couple of days ago. There was a sex trafficking ring that got broken up in Bellevue. Yep. Uh, for the listeners, Bellevue is uh, 20, 30 miles east of Seattle. It's kind of more considered the uh, a rich neighborhood. Lots of money in Bellevue. Lots of white and, people, too. Yeah, lots of white people. And so they, they busted a sex trafficking ring. I think they they freed three underage girls, made 12 arrests. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big deal. Fucking dirtbags. Um, abusing young women. Not cool. Yes. And I forget. It was either a Como 4, King 5. Somebody was, was reporting on this. And the, the lady that was speaking brought up that Mind you, this is not about, you know, dirt bags that are abusing and taking advantage of young girls. No, because the statistically the majority of or at least a higher number of the girls that fall victim to this are black and brown. Yes. Therefore, this is institutional racism full stop. Mm-hmm. This is not dirt bag motherfuckers. This is institutional racism, just like everything else. So rather than acknowledge that we got some evil people off of the street and, you know, did good on that front, um, they hijacked that for the cause, for the, for the woke cause. Right. And I, I just, to, yeah. Which isn't to say too, that there isn't some race, racist issues at play with sex trafficking. Yes, but, they're, but they're, to they're, hijack that for solely for the purpose of this is institutional racism rather than these are racist fucking dirtbags that yes. are taking advantage of girls. Exactly. And yeah, it, it very, very interesting way to go about doing it. Like I said, it's an absolute issue. It's an absolutism, right? It, yeah. It's one narrative, one way, period. This is how you look at it. Yeah. Um, Within that same article I'd mentioned about uh, that ethics professor who did the thing on race, um, I thought it was interesting because the author had quoted two other um, individuals when talking about uh, um, who had opposing views on what to do with the vaccine when it came to teachers. So um, one infectious disease uh, expert um, had said that teachers have middle-class salaries and are very often white and they have college degrees. Of course, they should be treated better because they're teachers, but they are not among the most mistreated of workers and therefore they shouldn't get the vaccine first. Someone else disagreed. And the reason they disagreed is, and this is again a quote, when you talk about disproportionate impact, you're concerned about people getting back into the labor force. Many are mothers and they all have a harder time if their children don't have a reliable place to go. And if you think generally about people who have jobs where they can't telework, they're disproportionately black and brown. They'll have more of a challenge when childcare is an issue. 
So in both instances, it's race-based only. They're looking only at race. And there isn't a consensus on whether teachers should get the vaccine or not. Yeah. Because if they get the, they shouldn't get it because they're white, but they should get it because black and brown mothers won't have anywhere to take their kids. All of which are legitimate problems. Like these are all actual issues, but now there's no, there's not really like, who, who do we give the vaccine to now? Because either way it's racist. Yep. Either because we give it to white people and it's racist or because we don't give it to white people and then it's right. Like this is part of the problem that I see is that I, I, when it comes to solving the problem and you only focus on the race issue is that now you have a fundamental problem with how to how to fix this. And there's a race system on both sides. It's like it, it's just an interesting it, it's just such an interesting problem to me where I'm like, maybe you should take a look at this in another way. Maybe this isn't the right way to do it because no matter how you look at it, you're going to have a problem. <laughs> like yeah. you're not going to make everyone happy. Like everyone wants the vaccine first. The only real people who aren't clamoring for the vaccine first are like young people who don't have yeah, kids. Yeah, it's like, I'm good. Like I don't care. <laughs> I'm not that sweat. I'm not worried about yeah, it. Yeah, and it. And I don't know the answer. To be clear, like I don't know the answer on what to do first. Maybe the actual response is we should give it to old people first regardless of color maybe we should start with old people of color first maybe that's the right thing to do maybe we should just give it to all people of color in the u.s first period maybe that actually is correct i don't think so just like i don't think we should give it to all white people first too to be to be to be fair but like i don't know if race is the right way to handle that um maybe we should give it to all essential customer facing um people facing workers first yeah, that's that's where I fall. The quote unquote frontline workers, they seem to be at the highest risk, highest risk. Um, so, so, yeah, give it to them first. So here's because I, I agree with that in part. But here's the other here's the other part of the argument that I see. Um, the people who die the most are the old people. Right. They may not if they're if they're at home, they may not have the highest risk, they technically of exposure. But if they get it, they will die broadly speaking right so versus younger essential workers who are more likely to survive it so giving it to the ascent the argument as i understand it is that giving it to essential workers first is basically saying that you're going to willingly and knowingly allow a group of people to die which would be old people in the hopes of helping more other people get vaccinated and that's an ethical problem well, it's, it's a nuanced question. It's and, and to, to frame it in the sense of the binary of all old people or all uh, yeah. black and brown people, full stop. That <laughs> what is that, man? That's that's a brain surgery with a handsaw. Well, no, I mean, right, exactly. And and then on top of that, I saw I, I read an article about the governor of Florida. Now, the governor of Florida is uh, apparently um, going against CDC recommendation. And uh, as far as I understand, the CDC recommendation is giving the vaccine to everyone 75 and older and essential workers, however they define it. And essential workers is like a very broad category, to be fair. It's like 100 million people. So it's a third of the population. It's I think it's half of the working population or maybe not half. Maybe it's like a, um, between a, 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 th a third and half. But um, it's a lot of people. Um He's going against that recommendation and he wants to give it to old people first. And the article was written in a way that would suggest that the um, the mayor 
who's a Republican, it states, is doing something bad. Hmm. And so, and so that this is partly why I hate reading the news is because I see both sides of the argument. Like we, I want to protect our older communities. It's important to protect them. And it's also important to protect our frontline, brave workers, firemen, policemen, doctors, nurses, school teachers, people that work at fast food restaurants and at grocery stores and in the places that are dealing directly with customers, those people should get it too. But then to see on the other end of it, you see an article where someone decides to help old people first and he's basically vilified for it because that's like the wrong thing to do. Yeah. It's like, so you would willingly kill your grandmothers and your grandfathers and your aunts and uncles. And it's like, it's such a hard question to answer and it's not an easy question. And no matter, no matter what people choose, whatever, what, no matter what states choose, it will be the wrong answer and the right one at the same time. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of speaks to politics in general. They're used yes. to that kind of Unfortunately, thing. Unfortunately, yeah. I think if if the decisions were made uh, with a combination of um, exposure potential along with um, potential damage based on either age, existing health conditions, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So how likely are you to get exposed? And if exposed, how likely are you to be severely fucked up and or dead? Sure. Um, you know, factor those in, regardless of how old you are or your fucking skin color. Um, if you're high risk and you're around a lot of people, let's get you a vaccine. Yeah. You know, if you're older, but you're, you know, you don't see anybody ever and you get all your stuff via Amazon Fresh, you'll probably be all right. That's, yeah. That seems reasonable to me. And it, it does to me as well. I nestled within this conversation too is um, is another argument that I think people have a lot of. It, it sounds to me as if uh, people have a lot of trouble with, and it's the notion of keeping people safe and restarting our economy, as if yeah. those two things are um, mutually exclusive, and you you can't do both, um, which I don't think is actually true, but. Um, you know, it's the idea of keeping the government shut down or uh, keeping the country shut down and opening it back up. Right. That, that's maybe more simply put. And so um, and I say it's nestled because if you vaccinate, vaccinate all essential workers and people who are customer facing, that will help restart the economy more naturally because there's more of them than there are, are old people. And there's less risk now. I guess technically we don't know that yet because the studies haven't bored out, but theoretically there's less risk of people getting infected because they've been immunized, right? They've, yeah. they've had the vaccine versus, so that's a good thing for the country as a yep. whole economically. And um, with that will come a lot of psychological benefits. People will go outside more and yeah. be less depressed um, versus keeping people safe by giving the vaccine to old people who aren't going out as much naturally anyways, because they're just less likely to want to move around as much. I would, I would assume, I don't know that for sure. So exactly. I could be wrong, yeah, but, yeah. um, and then you keep everyone and then everyone else has to stay indoors as well so that they don't see and infect old people because they're not vaccinated themselves. And so, yeah, it's, I, I lean a bit more towards helping the people who are on, as I would call it, the front lines yep. more so than anyone else first. Well, here's an easy one, nursing homes. Yes. Because of the proximity and the large group of older people. If you're in a nursing home, everybody gets a shot. Yes. 
that's a fucking easy one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, then, then, you know, the frontline workers, um, hospitals, I think everyone should get a shot. I could see yep. if you're going to, if you're going to extract, if you're going to do uh, um, nursing homes, I think hospitals would be a good extension. Yep. Um, yep. just as a catch all, um, it's tough because I have a great deal of respect for my elders. I was raised that way. Like I was partially raised by my grandmother and my grandfather. And, um, you know, we've talked before my dad was in prison um, when I was a kid and, um, before my stepdad came along. And even when he was around, my grandfather in particular was formative in raising me. And so mm-hmm. like, I have, I have a great deal of respect and I don't want to, I don't want people to lose their grandmothers and grandfathers and their older aunts and uncles and in the like, in the wisdom that they share and that they can impart upon these kids on, on kids. Um, that's extremely important as a culture to not lose that. Yeah. Believe it or not, old people know shit. Exactly. And, um, losing that knowledge alone is I think detrimental to the health and, um, vibrancy of a society. I actually do believe that. Um, with that being said, I think that it is also like it's also important to keep the people who are putting themselves at the most risk risk safe. And I think that there's a way to do that at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So let's keep going with Evergreen. Got off a little bit on the pandemic, which is fine. Um, So basically what we got so far is uh, Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hying, were incredibly progressive, tenured professors that were chased out because they wouldn't go along with the program. Not because of anything that was actually racist, but mm. because they wouldn't do what they were told. Well, it was actually specified, too, in, in, in the meeting that the, student, the students uh, had with uh, the President George Bridges. Um, I think that was almost a direct quote of, if they're not going to go along with the program, they should be fired. Like one, one Get of rid the of them, stu- he says. Yes, yeah. get rid of them. Yeah. One, one of the students even said it's like, I thought that this was presented to the faculty, the changes that they were going to be making, because there were there were broader changes uh, than just the day of absence, day of presence change. Like there was other changes that were made. Um, Apparently, they were very fiscally irresponsible changes. Yes. So, yeah, um, that was among, more behind uh, the scenes type of thing. Among but, other things. The, yeah. and I could try and speak to some of it, but mostly I'm just going to sound ignorant. Um, which isn't really new because a lot of what we talk about, I know only a little bit about, and I try and articulate myself well, and then sound terrible, sound stupid. But um, with this, I don't want to. I, I don't necessarily feel comfortable expanding on that more because there's. Only, I only know a little bit of it, and yeah. I really want to ask Benjamin Boyce about it because I know he knows a lot. But yeah, there was a uh, um, legitimate issues, and one of the students had literally said it's like uh, they were like. Um, Something along the lines of, I thought that the changes that were made were, when they were presented to the faculty, they they were presented as something you have to be on board with. And so I don't understand why Brett is still around if he's clearly not on board, given his email. And then calling it racist and calling him names and stuff. And then George, like you said, George Bridges was basically like, you know, got to get rid of him. Um, But... Again, like it, it, it just goes back to that whole point of 
get on board with the program or you're gone. There's no room for error or correct. Um, I, I forget who it was, but I, 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 I read someone who had written an article um, who basically the point of the article, they were uh, like a professor in postmodern theory. And they had said that, um, broadly speaking, critical race theory wasn't a religion. By their professional estimation, it wasn't a religion. And a lot of people have compared it to a religion. And kind of what we're talking about is why. Like, Catholicism is dogmatic. Yeah. yeah, it's dogmatic. Like, Catholicism is, is well, well criticized for this notion of it's our way or the highway. Like yep. There's absolution with your sins, which um, social justice ideology doesn't allow for. There is no absolution. That's no. one of the big differences. But um, there's that dogmatic approach is you need to recenter everything based on what we believe or it's wrong. Period. Yeah. Um, there is not absolution, but there is original sin. If yeah. you were born white, you are automatically guilty. And the only thing you can do is attempt to atone for the rest of your life, although yeah. you'll never do it. it, it well, the, yeah, the process never ends, yeah. um, which is just to say you'll have lifelong guilt. Yep. And um, yeah, it. Uh, Brett had actually talked about there's different types of people within the movement and the lifelong guilt and kind of what we're talking about reminds me of it because uh, the major, the largest part of the, of, of the, say the social justice movement um, at least as far as I, I can tell and I believe the largest part is individuals who legitimately are hoping for equality. Like they yeah. actually they actually want to fix the problems. And I think that within that as well, um, in particular, a large percentage of white people, they feel guilty about how people of color have been treated for a long time. Yeah. And so when you have a dogmatic ideology that is not only predicated on power, but is inherently predicated on guilt, you trap people into fighting for you by pressure, put, putting a finger on that pressure, on that guilt, on the, on the pressure point. Right. And then near as I can tell, and there's other ways to look at this, but one of the ways I, I view it is that a lot of people who press back on that, say like yourself and myself, um, aren't the most emotionally inclined. Like sure. I don't tilt emotionally. Yeah. So I'm much more analytical. So that guilt button does nothing for me. It isn't to say that I don't have, I don't feel guilt and I, I don't feel emotions. It's just that if someone is going to come to me in, in most any situation and as a way to manipulate me or to get me to want to do something, if they're going to press the guilt button and make me feel guilty, it's probably not going to work in most situations because that yeah. isn't what drives me in my actions. Even if I am guilty of something and should feel guilty, it's no guarantee that I would also just feel guilty and then acquiesce. I may still just because I'm stubborn too say, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not saying that blanketly, but it's it obvi obviously it's situational dependent but um not a lot of people like to be manipulated so yeah if, but it, if but you it, see it happening but individuals back. who are much more emotionally tilted right um 
and are more likely to rely on their emotions to make their informed decisions. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's a temperament difference. Yeah. They're going to be more susceptible to that guilt button because they don't want to be a bad person. Yep. Whereas I actually don't care if people think I'm a bad person <laughs> by and large. And again, situational, but if you were like, Bo, you're a bad person for footlocking me in jujitsu. Like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, and I, and I make that reference for those of you who don't know jujitsu for um, old school jujitsu practitioners um, in like the more traditionalist footlocking is bad. Um, it, it's coming around now. It's not as bad as it was, but for a long time it was bad. And it mostly because the old school Brazilians thought it was dirty and low and lazy. Um, and so if you did footlocks, you were bad. And in some cases in like the seventies and the eighties, you got excommunicated from gyms for, for doing so. Um, and so, um, that's where that joke comes from is that I, someone, if I did the leg locks and that was, someone's like, you're, you know, you're a dirty piece of shit for doing leg locks. I'd be like, I don't give a fuck. Like, I don't care. Cause I don't feel that way. <laughs> Learn I, the I'm defense. Not, yeah. Like I, I'm exactly like, I, I'm not, I'm not tilted that direction. Whereas someone else who is tilted that way may be like, I'm so sorry. I won't do leg locks ever again. I just want, I don't want to be bad. Right. I'm not in, there's more serious examples where I would, you know, not want to be a bad person. Of course, I don't want to give the impression that I don't want that, but my, my point is simply that I'm tilted that direction. And so that doesn't work on me and a lot of people like me who are more temperamentally tilted towards, um, say analytical thought versus emotional thought. Right. Um, but, uh, but I do think that a lo large number of people, they just want, they, they want to push towards equality. And I think it's actually more equality of opportunity than equality of outcome. Though I don't know if a lot of people understand the difference fully, but yeah. they, they yeah. want that. They want people to have equal opportunities in life. Um, yeah. As best as we as a society can do that. And we're actually have, have been pushing and are about as far, if not further than any other country or society ever in, in, in achieving that. But there's still a ways to go to, to, to do better. We can still yeah. do better and we should always continue to strive to do better. Um, in listening to uh, some of the videos, um, when Brett was talking to some of the protesters after he left the building, he actually was essentially describing um, what he wants for his, he used the term equity, but he was talking about equality of opportunity and he was talking about kind of what he wanted and everything. And the person who was uh, talking to him and was like arguing with him was like, he, the person literally said, they're like, what you're describing is not equity, it's equality. <laughs> and, and we've actually talked, you and I, about how equity is equality of outcome. Right. And equality is equality of opportunity, and that's actually what it means. Yeah. It's not really said all that much, but this person just reaffirms that. They're like, you're, well, it sounds like you're explaining equality, not equity. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what he's, he, he's describing. And for those who are unfamiliar, Equality of opportunity is, uh, broadly, it's the notion of giving people the same tools to succeed. Equality of Education, outcome. good nutrition, yes. financial resources, political resources, good neighborhoods, all that. Exactly. And equality of outcome is the notion of having equal outcomes across, um, depending on how you want to look at it, um, either certain metrics or all metrics. All metrics is actually mathematically impossible, but that's still... Um, that's still kind of what's pushed with certain people is all metrics should be equal. Right. Um, so I don't know how you would do something simple, like, or silly, like, uh, make everyone the same height. But, um, you hear this a lot when you hear for calls of completely equal representation 
in say government or in senior level positions in companies or schools, that kind of thing. That's equality of outcome, which isn't to say that you shouldn't have actual representation in in companies and in schools and, and whatnot, but um, the notion of equal representation. So if 20% of the US population is black, then you need you know, 20% of senior level management at Amazon needs to be black or what, and then on down the list, right? Um, th that's really the major difference. Uh, the problem with equality of outcome is that it's not feasible mathematically. That's actually the, the, for me, that's the major problem is that it's mathematically not feasible because people are too different. When do you stop? There's no way to stop. Because if you just stop at race, what about, what if you dig a, a, le a level deeper and you just, you discover that you e equalize race, but gender, there's disparities. So now you got to go to gender. And then what about gender and race? And then what about the trans community? And then how do you break down the trans community? And then what about um, disparities amongst height? And what if the disparities are reversed? So what if it isn't just white people who are doing well? What if it's black people? Like basketball is a good example. In the NBA, it's like 80% black. So do you keep it that way because they've been historically disenfranchised or do you fix the problem? Fire half, half the NBA players and then hire white people to do it. And these are all like very obvious and simple examples and kind of silly examples like the basketball one, but there, there's infinitely larger numbers of problems. Um, well, yeah, it, it, I mean, it makes a solid point as well. It ultimately, what you end up with is uh, communism. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, and yes. one of the major problems of communism is A, who gets to say when things are equal, and B, who enforces the equality? And the answer Without, is humans, and the problem is humans. Yes, exactly. It is, it is inevitably going to become corrupt. Yes. As we have seen before, that is not conjecture, that is historical fact. So... So let's take a look at, at some of the, the tricks that are used to, to forward these ideas and, and strategies, um, i.e. how the magic trick is in fact done. Um, I think one of the, the key things is they have managed to um, create these linguistic traps by redefining words, yes. which still fucking blows my mind. Um, <laughs> to that end, small aside, I remember when I was in the gym industry, um, it used to bug me to no end that the sales guys, and they were all fucking schmarmy sales guys, um, but everything was literally. Hey, I was a salesman for like eight years. So Yeah, did you use literally a lot? Dude, your head is literally going to explode when you see this deal. No, no, never. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's the, the princess bride moment. Yeah. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Um <laughs> And then, you know, a few years later, sure enough, the fucking dictionary redefined literally to to reflect that kind of a, a hyperbole. Yeah. And and that was a small thing, a small world, literally, a small word. Um, but now we have these words like white supremacist, racist, racism, um, violence silence is violence words are violence all these things are getting redefined in such a way that um we know what it means we being the, the you know the activist groups we know what it means 
And regardless of what your intent was, you made that face noise, mm -hmm. therefore it means this. And what happens is, um, you know, say the, the term white supremacist, if, if they define you as a white supremacist in a way that is not consistent with, you know, what prior to three, four years ago, everybody would understand the definition of that word and, and how it sits in a, a reference dictionary. Um, if you violate that based on their definition, you are then treated and suffer the same penalties as though you say burned across in someone's yard. Yes. And that's the, that's the shell game. That's the sleight of hand where we're going to change what a word means, but we're going to punish you as though you knew that and committed that vile act that the word in t uh, initially was defined by. Um, and that's happening all over the fucking place, man. Oh, yeah. Along with that, um, something else that, that Brett had brought up was the, the Trojan horse proposals, as he refers to them. Um, and, and this happens in politics a lot, but they're, they're taking that cue and um, using that as a tool. And what that means is um, if you write a giant proposal, let's say to um, set up the diversity, equity, and inclusion for your institution or school or, or place of work, whatever, um, it is written in such a way that A is super fucking dry and boring. It reads like an end, end user license agreement. I mean, have you ever read an iTunes agreement? I sure haven't. Um, so they write it like that and it gives them the opportunity to, you know, sneak in some fine print, so to speak. Yes. Um, and, and the example that Brett gave, uh, hearkening back to the proposal that, that really started everything, um, it was brought to everyone's attention via the email, but the conflict at the college apparently was more based on this proposal. And he said, there's, there is no way that the faculty had actually read this thing that they had signed on to. Um, and the most glaring thing is the amount of um, grammatical errors and just the, the overall poor writing in general uh, to to pass through the hands of several college administrators and professors, somebody would have said something. That's right. Cause it, right, it's exactly, literally yeah. their job. Um, so that seems pretty clear proof that people were signing on to something that they had not actually read. You know, they, they read the label in that um, we're, we're addressing institutional racism. You're not a racist, are you? Okay, well, let's go ahead and sign on and, and we're going to get some other people to sign on. Thanks. Um, without reading what they actually signed. And that's a tactic. Again, like I said, you know, it's politically not rare at all. Um, and apparently, this very last spending bill was uh, 5,500 pages long. And the legislatures were given like two, three hours to read yeah. it. Like literally impossible. Yeah, completely um, impossible, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it happens all the time, but that doesn't mean that it's okay and um, it's not an effective way to sneak in an agenda that is, uh, it's not what you're saying on the label, so to speak. No, very, um, very true, yeah. Yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts. Um, 
if, if I get off on a tangent, I want you to bring me back to self-defense because that's actually one of the directions I wanted to go yeah, bef- yeah, yeah, yeah. before we close up. And so um, just a quick thought on the redefinition and, and muddling of, 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 of words. Um, like equality and equity are good examples. So first off, equity is like means multiple different things. So like I have equity in certain companies with stock that I own. Yep. Um, Equity also is unrelated to this very similarly. Um, If you like actually, if you type in the words equality and equity in a word document and you like right click them and then go to synonyms, they're basically Mm -hmm. the same, right? There's not really a difference. There's a couple of synonyms or a couple of synonyms that are a little bit different. Like they don't get exactly the same ones, but there's, I think it usually gives you like seven, you know, seven different synonyms if you can find them. And like five of them are the same. Right. And so for basically everybody, they're the same damn word Yep. in a people context. You know, obviously no one's like, oh yeah, I own a bunch of equality stock. Like that's like you own stock in that company. If it's a company, you don't own equity in something, you know. Um, but when you're talking about people and and whatnot, those two for a, for a lot of people are the same thing. And 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 I think that the redefinition there it's 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 done on purpose. Like there's no there hundred percent. There's no yeah. way that at least as far as like I have a hard time believing that PhD PhD individuals individuals with PhDs who've spent years in academia who study words and discourse and knowledge um knowledge production all this kind of stuff accidentally chose that word because it fell off the tongue right and then kind of realized that it means something similar to equality and then was like oh well because of this let's redefine it and then we'll have equality mean opportunity and what this mean out like there's they did it on purpose like it's very oh, yeah. it's, it's very well clear. i mean in order for that to be true we would have to assume that these phds were in the search of truth yes and they are clearly not they're in search of what they are calling justice which is the power grab therefore truth doesn't matter only the results of a a, a change in power matters by any means necessary well i think truth is power i don't know this for sure but i I think that's kind of where um the the terms you know you speak your truth to power comes from in part i want to do some more research on this so someone who's listening can send me something or like maybe comment and explain the diff what it actually means but it would seem to me that that's sort of the thing is because my my initial reaction is to push back against the fact that they don't want actual truth because they're definitely like as a collective searching for something people search for things whether they like it or not um even nihilists to some degree are searching for something the the problem near as i can tell is that they don't believe that there's anything to search for so the so it's life is hopeless it's still a lot. They're searching for something worth searching for. Yeah, but it, they they don't think they can find it, and so it's there's still something to search for. They're just fed up with trying to find it, right? And so right. They, they feel nihilistic as a result, right? But that doesn't mean that there isn't still something there. And this isn't necessarily a nihilistic um, 
way of looking at the a lens with which to view the world. That nihilism within postmodernism was was rejected because that, that's actually the one of the many problems with postmodernism is that it's nihilistic. It's cynical and nihilistic. Like if you just run postmodernism to its end conclusion, there's just no point to the world, right? Yeah. Everything is just nothing is real. <clears throat> nothing exists and why are we you know we have no reason to be here and that's not really going to advance any option that's partly why it's cynical is i think that you know it's you you can just fuck around at that point the movement obviously doesn't just fuck around and so they dispense with that part and then they actually have to find some kind of a truth i i would say meaning and truth in this case are very similar but i think it's power i think that's that's the case that that's that's it is it's that that power is their truth it's their um, they're, well, yeah, no, they, God, they believe maybe. they already have the truth. Well, like, they're not oh, searching for truth. They yeah. think they have it. We're going to tell you what it is, and that's that. This, the, our truth is not up for discussion. That's why you see everything that you see when it comes to um, yeah. well, uh, 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 lack of humor is a good example of that, right? Um, the, the, you know, the tyrannical king who kills the court jester that's when you know there's something wrong is because the court jester is there to make fun of the king. And if the king doesn't allow it, it means that he believes that he's infallible. Yep, right. Yep. The king that will allow the jester to make fun of him is like, okay, like there's some room here for other people's opinions. Yeah. It, well, we, and we definitely should touch on that as well. The yeah. humorlessness uh, of, of things. Moment, yeah. and, 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 and you see the, um, the lack of argumentation or the lack of other opinions. I mean, in, in the videos in particular that we're referring to from Evergreen, like the, the big, one of the big issues with the whole protest is that they don't allow for any other thought. Like they're just right and you're wrong and therefore really bad. And it's like, we've talked a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, but maybe Brett should have just shut up. Maybe him taking a stand when he did wasn't the best thing to do, but there should still be at least room for conversation. And the fact that yeah. it was denied is, is, is quite, it makes it clear that the uh, ideology that is being pushed, like the beliefs that these these students and this, these groups have, they believe that it is 100% true and there is no other truth or other way to look at the world. Um, yeah. Which, which I actually find kind of ironic um, when you consider their focus on rejecting objective reality and focusing on lived experience because there's 700, there's 7.5 billion lived experiences in the world. And there isn't just one objective truth, but there's a lot of things that would fall under the rubric of like Western objectivity. You know, so like I think I think by the, the the nature of the word, there is only one objective truth. Sure, we may or may not have an accurate vision of that. And that, any that's kind of why I, I'm hesitant there. But um, you know, all of the things that we have discovered as a species, or maybe as a yeah. as a as a culture, you know, does kind of fall under this rubric. Um, Oh, speaking of which, this is a total aside, uh, since we haven't actually started yet. Have you seen oh, I'm Cosmos so Possible? We, 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 could, we could totally. Oh, so yeah. am I, but I, I didn't think we were actually no like going, going. We're just kind of setting it up. Um, have you seen Cosmos Possible Worlds? No. Oh, my God. It is fucking brilliant. So uh, did you see, I don't know, a couple years ago, Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of rebooted the original Cosmos series? Have you seen any of those? I haven't seen them, but I've heard about it. Yeah, super good. Neil Tyson's the shit. It's as good as you would hope. Yeah. Um, the latest one, and mainly it's just kind of the, the the graphics of it have gotten so much better. And Neil, of course, is still awesome. And you know, there's like brand new information as far as 
what the the level of uh, cosmological knowledge is mm -hmm. at this point, and and how and why we know these things about, you know, Ganymede and Titan and you know Saturn and different planets and all this stuff. Uh, absolutely fucking fascinating. If that type of stuff interests you at all. Off to check it out. Get yeah. your hands on that series. It was so beautiful. I'm like three episodes in. I think they did ten for the season. Yeah, super good. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure I shared that. No, no worries. And they said, yeah, I'm recording on my end as well, so we can. That little bit we just did is good, so we could cut. If you can cut that and use it, that'll work just fine. Um, okay. That's possible, well, let's let's uh, let's try and take a fresh run into sure. it, um, and I can I can cut any other stuff if it if it's helpful. Um, so you yeah. you ended with redefinitions of words, so we can. Let's just kind of go back over that and just kind of continue it. That way it makes it easier for you. Does that work? Um, actually, let's just do this. If you want to bring up the next one and we can just go to the lack of humor okay. oh, as a key um, point. Yeah, let's do, let's do lack of humor. That works. And then okay, uh, cool. um, remind me, we'll hit self-defense as well. Yeah, for sure. Because I, okay. I have that highlighted. I want, That's one I thought would be good to go over just with our self-defense jujitsu background as well. It's... um. um That'd be a good one to end with, probably too, just because of how it ties in everything else we've talked about. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it so directly affects the most negative aspects of what we're seeing. Yeah. Because if you can claim self-defense, then you get to burn down someone's building and smash and loot and, you know, yeah. chop chaz, all that shit. So, okay. So one of the things that I find very interesting is uh, the lack of humor within the social justice uh, um, movement ideology. Um, there, there aren't room for jokes at all, at really all. at all. I mean, <laughs> there are some jokes. Don't get me wrong. That's just to say that there aren't any is 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 obviously wrong. In fact, in, in some of the videos that we're we're referring to from Evergreen, the um, the leaders, the, the student leaders that are running the show. Um, they make actual jokes in the, you know, it, they're given the situation. It's, um, it's interesting, but they're still kind of funny. Like they make, they make fun of white people. It's quite hilarious. So they, I think one, uh, one of the times I mentioned, I think earlier in the podcast, but, um, one of the students was like, oh, the whites brought water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, look, Which look. You granted that is funny, but that's, uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, so, <laughs> so there is an interesting way to view that whole thing, and I, th yeah. I think it's uh, it's illuminating yeah. to how how the people that are really running with this view it, Very, not yeah. so much as you know finding what we would call equality, equal opportunity, mm -hmm. but trying to get equity, and in order to get equity, it is uh, radical reparations. Well, I was going to say this kind of this kind of runs not only into the r radical reparations we were talking about. Um, fairly obviously it's like okay like we need because throughout the videos you see um the the leaders of color they they, they consistently and constantly tell because um, most of the protesters at the school are white and they consistently tell the people the white people like they need to barricade themselves in front of the people of color they need to put themselves out on the line they need to do things for the people of color um to protect them and you know fair enough like there's, I, I can understand some reasons for that, especially if the the, peop, the the BIPOC community that's leading the protests is genuinely concerned with um, dealing with the police. Prior, uh, I think it was the year before um, 
all the events took place. So in 2016, there was actually I didn't look into the specifics of it, but there, apparently there was a um, an off campus shooting involving the police. And my, my assumption is that it was a student of color because it um, it was specifically mentioned at some point in the research I've done that it, it was included as part of the uh, creating the tension that led up to this moment. Was that the guy with the skateboard? I can't remember. Like I said, I, I didn't look too much into it because we've had so much stuff to look into. It, it's on my list to go over and I'll probably bring it up again. But my assumption just by the, the blurb that I saw was that it most likely was a student of color who was shot by one of the policemen who deals with on-campus disputes um, simply because they were concerned with the police. And the police that deal with Evergreen College um, – they're the only ones that deal with Evergreen College. It isn't like it's the city of Olympia sends random police. It's There's like a set group of policemen that only deal with the college. And it's been like that for a long time because they've- Is that an actual department or just kind of a part of the I've, local department? I, I can't remember. Um, okay. It's kind of one of those, like I said, there, there's been so much stuff I've been trying to look up to make sure I get it all right. That there's like these little yeah. details that I forget to look up. And then you ask a great question and I'm like, damn it. <laughs> Like it's an involved story. That's that's one of the things I was going to look up and then I forgot. I I believe that they are a part of the uh, Olympia, um, like the the police station. Um, She's a police chief. The um, uh, the 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 leader there. She's actually considered a police chief. So I think it's a precinct. But it's like the whole function is to like deal with Evergreen. And it's like I said, I'm pretty sure it's been like that since like the 80s or the 70s because they've had issues over the year, over the decades with police um, coming to campus because it's a big protesting school. Like it's, a, it, yeah, yeah. you know, we talked about it a little bit. It's a super big hippie school. Um, they've done a lot of protest over the years. They have the day of presence, day of absence, sorry, um, which by itself is a literal form of protest, a, a peaceful one and a, I think a good one um, in, in the way that it was created. But um, they've had issues and then also Olympia being sort of a, an epicenter for um, for um, radical feminism, and in particular radical feminism, uh, um, radical feminist uh, punk rock, which, you know, it's, mm-hmm. that's going to, the energetic, the energy of punk rock, right, just kind of breeds with it. Um, an- yeah, there's a history there. You know, anarchy and, and excitement and uh, young kids, young crowds who are more likely for destruction. I, that could be a generalization that's wrong, but it, from what I know of, um, especially old school British punk, um, that was a big part of, and then skinhead, skinhead punk from like Venice Beach down in California, that kind of thing. A lot of it brought destruction, right? Because they were fed up with the man. Sure, yeah. And then they, you know, and so I, I can see there being a tenuous relationship there. But well, I think the the most important distinction with there being a, a separate and specific, whether it's a, a precinct or a group or what have you, that is you know assigned mm-hmm. to the college, is that the president has the authority to tell the police to stand down yes. and they have to do it. And that's exactly what he did. So I, I don't think that they have to, that may not be correct. I believe that they choose to, because they want to keep good relations. Well, I they, think. they chose to make a very extreme yes, choice in the case of professor Weinstein, but you, you could be correct. But um, I, I believe that they have the ability to say no, they just part of why there is only one precinct with the college is because they have that agreement that, you know, we're going to do what we can for the college. And if they ask these questions, like there was one point in the videos where 
the the police showed up right off campus, like in the parking lot, and then waited. And they they didn't come on campus because they were told not to. And so that they they fo- they do follow those commands, but I think that they can break them if they choose. They just don't. It, um, well, it, th- I guess the distinction then is that that whatever that mm-hmm. relationship is, it is strong enough that they will listen, and they will they yes. being the police will listen and stand down exactly when a you know a, a non officer of the peace, meaning the president of this college, tells them to go away. And there's there's that one clip where you can hear the police call and then you see the video of what's going on and the students were blocking the road so uh, somebody couldn't leave in their vehicle. They're all you know lined up across the road and, and they can't drive forward. And somebody from campus is talking to somebody from the police and they say, um, well, you were, we're blocking this car. And they're like, no, 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 the students are blocking the car. The, the students are stopping the person from leaving. Yeah. And the officer is like, well, how come we're not stopping the students from stopping this person from leaving? Well, the president told us to stand down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, what? That's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> the president says, don't do your job, basically. And they listen. So that's, that's, that's a significant um, piece of the story. Yeah. That that's the environment. Yeah. And it's an interesting dynamic. And I think that it's a good one to explore because you, I can see the merits to wanting that sort of trust between students, faculty, administration, and the police because they're there to protect you, but things go wrong. And so you want a little bit of give and take. However, as we see with Evergreen, um, it it's ripe for um, taking advantage of that situation. And that's in part one of many things that occurred is that the police are very much handicapped in their ability to um, effectively neutralize the problems. And yeah, and so it's like if people, if people, students were actually, you know, they mentioned that they were trolling the um, parking lots, looking through cars with bats, looking for somebody. If the police were on campus and armed, that would not have happened. Or I mean, it would have been stopped, right? Right, exactly. the other end of that argument is like, well, would how would it have been stopped? And would that have been good? Because maybe the way that it stopped is something that leads to legitimate physical harm to a bunch of students. Or these are agitated students. They're angry. They're upset. They have power. Um, they're armed. Even if it's just with bats, they're still armed. Who's And they have... A semi well it's not just bad bats are absolutely a deadly weapon well, right exactly and but yeah. compared to the guns that the cops would have right they're they're out you know that that's not good but you know and they have a tenuous relationship with police just in general um that's mm-hmm. a big that was a good part of the protesting was their um complaints about the police and use of force so what if they don't comply and then we have police using maybe proper force or excessive force or something, you know, um, worse where they end up killing someone. And so like, I can understand the merits for wanting to have a, try and resolve the situations peacefully. Like, like we talk about with jujitsu, it's like, I get that, you know, not having the fight is really the goal of jujitsu. It's not, you know, like I'm not really all that concerned getting if i get into a fight with pretty much anybody almost regardless of size am i not remotely really terrified of even very large gentlemen or women i suppose but it'd be most likely to be a gentleman but (laughs) um i don't like it but 
my whole goal and the, you know, what I've learned through my years with jujitsu is to not have the fight at all. And so this seems to me to be something that's very similar. It's like, okay, if we can, if we as the people in control, in power, right, we're the police, we have powers that the average human, the average citizen doesn't have. If we take a step back, maybe that will alleviate the problem. In this case, it did not. It actually caused the problem to push forth. And you see that a bit with like um, the protests and things around the country right now to parallel what happened then to now. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing the police aren't doing what they would have normally done for a multitude of reasons and things are getting out of hand. Areas of cities yep. are being taken over. Um, people aren't being pulled over for certain things. Um, the police were literally, and I mean that by the old school definition, literally and actually run out of a precinct yes. in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. it, so yeah, that's that's how far it's going. Well, yeah, and then um, I had heard a story from um, from someone someone I know that said that. Um, Someone they knew, their like their boyfriend's car was stolen or something in uh, like uh, down by Soto, downtown Seattle, in the Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. that area. And so they uh, they they see the person breaking in, they get the car, they run out, the people drive off in the car or something. They call the cops. The cops find the car, but the cops don't pull the person over and get the car. They let him go. And so they were like, "Why'd you let him go?" And the reason is because if they're um, turn on their sirens and their lights person will speed away they don't want them to hit a pedestrian hit another parked car hit, some, you know, hit, hit someone else and then cause further damage or loss of life so they don't do it and the um what the fuck but, no see that decision typically happens at about a hundred miles an hour yeah and you call off a pursuit yep. because civilians are in danger that makes sense. And, yeah. But to not light them up in the first place <clears throat> because they may run and they may hit somebody? What the, what the fuck is that? Apparently it's been an issue such, yeah. such that <laughs> yeah. criminals are aware of it, so they just drive off anyways because they know that yeah. if they don't stop, the cops won't chase, which is interesting. But um, Oh, my God. That's, a, that's amazing. I didn't know that was going on. Yeah, I didn't either. That's unbelievable. Um, Holy shit. But yeah, so interesting issue with the police um do you remember where we were so, before yeah. then bring me back to where we were um yeah so we were talking about sorry second humorlessness that's what it was yes yeah so, so the humorlessness of it the i think the, that relationship with the police is uh, is an important distinction yeah. um so yeah the issue that i take with the humor is um you know and maybe this is because i've read too much shakespeare but because I like Shakespeare, but Shakespeare does a good job of this in, in, in a good number of his plays. But um, the jester king at the king's court is sort of the is the is the one who makes fun of the king, right? Right. He's the folly, right? He's the one who comes out and is like the king's an idiot sometimes, and then everyone and the king or the queen, but the and the king usually <clears throat> laugh. Like that's the whole point. To make the king laugh, you make fun of him a little bit. And you don't do it all the time because then you're just an asshole and then, you know, you get beheaded because that's what happened when there were kings and jesters. Um, 
it's socially important though. But, it's, but it a, it's a social stress relief. It very much so. Uh, so it, yeah, you, you poke fun at power a little bit. Everybody goes with it. Okay, you also we're, poke fun at ideas, right? You, you poke yeah. you poke fun of the notion that whoever seemingly holds the power doesn't hold all of the best ideas, and that's actually that's crucial to um, survival for a culture, for a society, because um, the tyrant who because who kills the jester? It's the the tyrannical king who doesn't want to be made fun of. Why? Because it, it hurts their ego or whatever, but it's because they think that they're right. If I'm right and you make fun of me, you're just a fuck and I don't want you around because I'm right. So how dare you try and poke holes in my irrefutable logic? And so movements that have a lack of humor um, fall prey to that. It's just, it, it highlights their assumption that they have, they have the capital T truth mm -hmm. They need no more information. There are no possible additional facts that could change their mind. Yeah. You just need to shut up and listen to them, and they are going to tell you how to do things. Yeah, and it's um, it, that's a scary thing to see because when the, when the comedians go, the culture goes. You know. Yeah. And we've seen a, a good bit of that with comedians in general um, over the last few years. Um, I, I think they're. Um, I, I've seen a couple of different videos personally where like comedians have been either at a comedy club or um in one case one comedian was asked to speak at like a college or something and um he was interrupted in the middle of his comedy act for making um what was a you know was an inappropriate joke but um the the, the people who did the set it all up the students the two of the students they like came up on stage and took the mic from him and like kicked him off stage and I don't remember what the joke was. Um, I think it was. Uh, I, I have like half the joke in my head. It, it was it was funny and inappropriate. It was he would the, he basically was telling a joke about someone who's black and gay, and he's like, um, you know, why would I choose to be gay or why would I choose to be black? One or the other because I'm both. Like they, they both it's both it's hard to be both something like that. And he was like right. an Indian guy, yeah. and so they thought it was offensive because <clears throat> he wasn't black and gay. And he's like. I literally had a black gay man at a comedy store tell me that after I did a bit and then I asked him if I could use it and he said yes. He's like, so I'm literally telling a story <laughs> that someone told me, like a joke that like a, a black gay man told me and they like freaked out. Um, and Well, that's 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 thought police. Well, that's the thing is that's it's like thought crime. You know, there's a lot of inappropriate jokes, right? There's, there's jokes that I don't like and I, I generally like all kinds of jokes. You know, some things just aren't funny. Um, but the bigger issue isn't that um, they're not funny. It's that people should still be allowed to say bad, mean things. Like I, and I'm very firm on that personally. It's like, I, I don't, if a comedian gets up and tries a really bad joke and it doesn't land, he's going to know, or she's going to know, like they're going to find out because people aren't going to like it. And then they move on and then they try a new joke. Like the whole point is to press the boundary. That's literally the point. And it, that's how the jester functions, right? You know, the jester makes the joke and then everyone looks at the king to see if the king laughs. And if the king laughs, ever, no one dies today, right? <laughs> and so, but it's it's incumbent upon the jester to push that boundary so that more and more jokes can be made so that the king yeah. will loosen up and will allow for more. As soon as the king starts cutting heads off, no one talks, right? Because you just don't know when you're going to lose your head. You know, right. and in my head, the whole time we're t I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm just thinking of uh, the the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland, uh, Wonderland, like off with your head, you know, because um, yeah, she like just randomly that's... will cut heads off because things are done wrong. And 
Um, the new version of that is the cancel culture. Well, I, 100%. I, I, think, I think very much so. And it's like, as I try and think through all this stuff logically in my head, it's on, on one hand, you have people saying inappropriate things or mean things, or maybe they're not even comedians. Maybe someone literally just tweets something that's really fucking rude. And it's like, okay, that person should face some sort of punishment, whatever that may be. You know, I, I personally prefer it to be just social. Um, I, I don't, I, 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 I'm not sure how I feel about that leaking into your personal or professional life, but that's a, we have social media. So there, we're going to have to figure those rules out as a culture. Yep. Um, so, but so, so I'm not willing to die on that hill, but, um, I think people should still be able to say that stuff. Like there's a responsibility that comes with making bad jokes, whether it's because that's your actual job, because you're a comedian or you're just an idiot on Twitter who says something stupid. It's like there's a responsibility and you have to own up to that. I do not, however, think that the response that the responsibility should always be um, complete and utter annihilation. That can't be it. No. Well, here's the thing. Maybe I, sometimes, nobody, but... nobody has the right to not be offended. Exactly. And you don't want to be offended. And most people don't want to be offensive. Sometimes offensive is funny. It is, yeah. If you don't like it, don't participate. Yeah. You know, ignore it. Or, you know, you can give an appropriate social pushback to say, hey, that was fucking rude and that hurt my feelings. And maybe they'll reconsider or maybe they won't because they are another human being and they are allowed, at least at this point, to have their own thoughts. Well, yeah. And that's really fucking important that everybody has that right. So you should have a right to have your own thoughts. You do not have the right to not be offended. Yeah. yeah. No, very, very true. And um, you don't really see any of that hu humor amongst the people who follow the movement you you see the humor from people who generally sit on the outside well i think that the humor that you see making fun of it like is yeah. well no the, the humor that you see within the organization like the example you gave is those people doing the exact same things that they are supposedly pushing back against all the historical you know uh the crap they took or whatever yeah. Um, the, the inappropriate racial jokes. Well, they get to do that now because why? They can make fun of white people because of why? Well, it's self-defense, right? To, to bring this. Yeah, I mean, personally, yeah. I say open it all up. <clears throat> you know, it, yeah, make fun of white people. That's fine. And we make fun of black people too. That's fine too because if you do something stupid, you probably should be made fun of. And that's just how we navigate a culture mm -hmm. as human beings. And, you know, that doesn't mean to deride them or to take away any opportunities they may have or, or any of that bullshit. But everybody should be able to flip everybody else some shit every once in a while. And that is, you know, as, as uh, Professor Weinstein pointed out, that is how... A society navigates tricky ideas. Yeah. You kind of, you throw it out there. It's a little teaser. I'll make a little joke and see how people respond. Mm -hmm. And that is a really, really important thing when two, you know, different groups or cultures are coming together to navigate. How, how are we going to communicate with each other in a way that works for everybody? I throw a little joke out. You laugh. Okay, that's cool. I throw another joke out. You don't laugh. All right, so we won't touch that subject. Um, it's a very important mechanism for social cohesion with different groups. Yeah. And I, it's, you know, as you're kind of explaining that, what comes to my mind is like dating. Okay. Right. Um, 
I don't know if uh, I've always thought of sales like like dating as well um, because of the how the interactions function. But it's kind of a separate thing we talk about later. But um, you know, imagine if you are with your partner and you say something, and their response is something along the lines of, "That's a stupid idea. If you have it again, I'll break up with you." Yeah. And then you don't. Can I explain myself? No, that's just a bad idea. And then you move on. And then let's say you just move past it, but you have another totally unrelated idea. And they're like, how could you be so idiotic? Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's obviously this. Or, you know, maybe something else, maybe three months down the road, there's another thing that's, again, totally unrelated. And they're like, that's that's also a really bad idea. You have this idea. Again, I'm, we're going to break up. Like that's, you can't hold that idea. That's just, that's, that's wrong. The relationship's not going to last very long. Why? Because there's no give and take. It's absolutism, right? It's like, this is bad. I don't even want to entertain why it's bad, or I don't want to hear what you were thinking. It's, and this is the same thing. And it's like, if you view the interactions between individuals within a society and maybe the culture as a whole, as a relationship, it's like, you have to have some of that. And with that, you have to have some things you just don't say because you probably know it's a bad idea. Um, and then maybe there's things that you need to say because there's a time to make a stand, right? There's a time when you need to push back um, when your spouse oversteps their bounds, right? And, uh, um, or what happened, you know, however that may look, right? Um, and uh, it, it, that's, what, that's what comes to mind, at least for me, is that you don't have to allow everything always and never say nothing. But you also don't want the opposite of that, where there is nothing. You, know, you need to allow for people to say dumb shit and then correct them. But you need to allow yeah. for the correction. Like we talked a, a bit earlier in the podcast about there's no absolution. There's no salvation with um, this white this white sin, right? Um, yep. And that's the problem is it's like at the end of this, there's no... You just you're just bad. Well, it, it lacks empathy and understanding. Yeah. And those two things are critical for human beings to get along. And if you take those away, mm-hmm. uh, and this is historically proven true for millennia, you take those away, then you just have battling groups. Yes. And to, uh, to take it to an extreme end, if you don't want to participate in empathy and understanding as a group... And you're trying to battle a group that is many times larger than you. How do you think that's going to work out? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm of course not advocating this, but if you're not going to listen to any white people, you're just going to tell them how it is, tell them how bad they are, and they can never fix it. How the hell do you think they're going to respond to that? Yeah. If there's no empathy and understanding going one way, there's not going to be any going the other way. Well, this reminds me. And that's me, not going to work out in anybody's favor. Yeah, this actually reminds me of... Um, right towards the, at the end of and right uh, when Trump was first elected. So after the election came through and like right bef- right leading up to it and then a little bit afterwards. But I remember uh, very vividly, probably the few months at least leading up to um, him winning the vitriol from the left in particular um, on pe- people who were either openly or um, mostly openly talking about voting for Trump. Um, 
it was pretty intense. It wasn't like still is really well, it still is, but I, I think this is yeah. indicative of of the point I, I would make here, which is that um, when you condemn someone like that and you don't allow them to grow, what's going to happen when like you try and reconcile? Like, there's no reconciliation, right? It's like, exactly. and that's kind of what happened is that there was all these epithets thrown about. Like, all of a sudden, these, you know, and I'm not saying that. Um, Trump should have been elected or that I you know, I don't like him and I didn't vote for him but um, you know when you when you tell these middle lower middle class midwesterners who own farms who just want to be left alone and maybe they had their reasons to vote for Trump I don't like let's just say that they had legitimate economic reasons I don't know um, that they're Nazis who hate blacks and Jews and women and um, Hispanics and like that every person that isn't a white you know Midwesterner they they they're bigoted against and then like seven months later they're like oh hey why don't we all come together as a family it's like fuck you <laughs> yeah no there there is no desire to come together and that's, that's a problem and it's like again that's not yep. necessarily to justify or to say that you know I mean people who voted for Trump had their reasons and some of them had reasons that were bad some of them had legitimate reasons just like any other president has ever been voted for and um but the point would be that there's no reconciliation at the end of that if you don't allow people to be wrong like that's the thing is that there was no allowing to be wrong and um if i can't be wrong and then learn from that if and that's really where that salvation that um uh, absolution comes in right that uh um forgiveness comes in then whenever you want to be nice to me i don't ever trust you because all I ever hear is that I'm just this worthless piece of shit who can't get anything right no matter how hard I try. And then you're like, no, no, come over. We're friends. It's like, are we? Like, I'm a horrible person. Like, yep. I, you know, I have bad ideas. I believe all these things that I'm not even aware of that make me a horrible person. Even if you say I'm not horrible, like, that's one of the things that I always found interesting is that the fact that white people are racist unconsciously inherently because of our skin color um, doesn't mean that it's bad like Robin D'Angelo tries to break up the good bad binary like you're racist you're bad you're um, not racist you're good and it's like racism is bad the, the, <laughs> yep. it's not a good thing um, yeah that isn't to say that people don't have their biases and don't have racist moments and maybe aren't actually right or actually racist but um, from time to time or just always but it's not a good thing prejudices are sometimes good some, and sometimes they're bad and there's a difference of course i'm making obviously a difference between racism and prejudice but um you know um as an example uh sexual selection by nature is prejudice so um yep that in terms of how our consent laws work in the u.s um we actually have to be prejudiced otherwise that would create some conflict i think um yeah otherwise it would just be discriminatory to deny somebody sex and then you could you would have to non-consent to it in order to not be discriminatory, you know, to not get it's it. It's like the incel argument argument. Yeah, like, like <laughs> I mean, it's so, involuntary celibate. <laughs> well, you might want to work on yourself there, homie, because yeah. nobody wants to fuck you. No, right, right, yeah, right. It, yeah, it, it, exactly. And so it, um, it's just an interesting, interesting, interesting problems that um, I. You need to allow people to make mistakes. Is the right? Yeah. You, you need to 
allow them to see where they're wrong and why and hopefully grow from that because we evolve as humans over time and we have we have different ideas over time it would be scary to me if we didn't and everyone thought like they did when they were three um, sometimes i think like i watched the protests and sometimes i think that they're three because they act like two and three year olds would act just with slightly more sophistication because <laughs> they're just college students and you know they can yeah. hopefully they can read and they can all talk but they're throwing tantrums with but, a better vocabulary but, but, yeah in again you know more power to them do their protesting that's fine um they have legitimate reasons i think to um make a stink about problems like i don't discount mm -hmm. that um but as do kids but oftentimes when you allow the emotion to get the better of you things just get out of hand in ways that they shouldn't and that's what it seems like it happened to me is it it was something that just went too far and then once they got committed they can't undo it and then you know you see things you know fall and i think that they were all probably too committed and never even thought about pulling out like it's not really how the ideology works but um well, I think it's important to say, you know, it's not everybody. You know, we've yes. said this oh, yeah. before. Um, initially, the daytime protests, the ones that I saw and took part in, very peaceful. Uh, but there was that element that was coming out at night that was using that as an excuse to damage property and cause mayhem in general. Yeah. So do you uh, want to talk yeah. about um, uh, self-defense or um, authoritarian tendencies? Because what you're talking about um actually it branches into both quite intensely yeah let's let's do self-defense okay. and the, let's uh, yeah i think it's probably a good place to end on too i know we've been doing this for about two hours and so um, yeah i would for myself i would start the significance of self-defense is is the understanding that a person's actions happen within a context and if the context is one of self-defense it changes what is allowed yes meaning if you go and crack someone over the head with a baseball bat out of the blue then that is an assault and you should be locked in a cage for a while but if someone is coming at you with a knife and you perform that same action in self-defense and you crack them over the head and you knock them out or kill them, um, that is completely justified because that person was attempting to take your life, you defended yourself mm. and, and that's okay. So self-defense as a concept is very, very important in society. What's happening with the movement is they are hijacking that concept. Yeah, yeah. in the name of self-defense, they are trying to justify the actions that they're taking, including, you know, violence and looting and, and all the rest of it and saying, hey, it's self-defense. And that is that's probably one of the most dangerous redefinitions of a word or concept that is taking place that I don't really hear, you know, anybody other than, you know, Professor Weinstein talking about. Yes and understanding hey this is this is a big problem if we allow this to continue well, the definition of self-defense needs to be very clear mm -hmm. and agreed upon by all so we've talked a bit about um the, this dichotomy in other ways but the notion that um there's two notions the one of like words being violence mm -hmm. and silence being violence or silence is complicity yep. but it's, <laughs> complicity well, is violence. how many signs have we seen silence is violence yeah, that's so, people are believing that so what you have here if we look at this in terms of self-defense 
is we have someone backed up into a corner surrounded by people with nowhere to go because words so people talk and it's violent and then when people are quiet it's violent so there's only violence around you there's no yeah. other real means of non-violence right and so um that that avails you of any and all to, you know tools that you would use to um get out of the problem right and so uh, your your personally lived experience problem, yeah. however it is you see that to be, and either what the person said or what the person didn't say was experienced as violence. Yeah. Therefore, you're claiming to be justified in doing whatever it is you want. Yeah, we've heard a couple of times uh, throughout the last few months about the notion that property violence isn't property damage isn't actually violence. Right. Um, it's justification. And so that in part is a self-defense justification in this, in, in this context, because it's a, it's an action based on their perceived threats of violence. Um, but I'm going to take this a step further. Um, and okay. we're going to go over a slight little theory here. So, um, property damage, property violence is not actual violence, um, within theory. So critical theory, critical race theory, um, there's a notion that whiteness, so the the whiteness that you or I have for being white um, is can be thought of as property. It's something that we inherit, that we have that's a property that gives us value, like a home. Mm. So if property violence is not actual violence and white people have a property known as whiteness based on their skin tone, does it seem illogical to conclude that property violence on whites on whiteness is not violence which would be to be violent to what to white people so um i want to be very careful with this theory of course um, i'm not suggesting that um, there are academics or um, large groups of so social justice movements that are um, proclaiming yet boldly that violence against white people is justified. Um, I, I get to hear this argument, but um, I'm just simply making a connective leap between those two concepts because... Yeah, and I don't think you're the first person no, to make that no, leap. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and like I said, like I, we've talked about many times before on this podcast, part of one of the main reasons I, I like doing this podcast and why I started it is because I, I want to um, talk out the ideas and the shit that appears in my head. And then, you know, wrestle with it. And this is one of those yeah. ideas that literally just popped into my head. I just had to, you know, connective tissue was like, hey, these two things seem related. And that's the only conclusion that I can draw from that. And I'm not a PhD who is um, well-versed in critical theory. So if I can come to that conclusion, I would be shocked unless PhDs in critical theory are actually not intelligent. Um, if academics did not already have these thoughts and think them through and have them somewhere. I'm sure it's in the literature somewhere um, because that's a very simple, that, that's not a far-fetched leap to make. Yeah. I've made some pretty far-fetched leaps in my life. Um, <laughs> and even on this podcast, I'll, I'll connect things that don't seem really all that uh, related, but this one seems pretty simple. It's property violence is not violence. Whiteness is, that white people have is property. So you can connect those very easily. 
and yep. the thing that whiteness is is just our skin tone and the privileges that come from that so how do you how do you um engage in property violence in that regard yeah you either strip well, i think even white people of their even in the abstract or you yeah, or, or I, you hurt them physically right so it's a strip exactly, it's a stripping yeah. of privileges or a, a physical violence like in the abstract, it seems very clear that many of the people that are really causing the trouble, um, meaning, you know, doing the looting and smashing and burning, that they are making that connection of this building is owned by a white person. Therefore, I am justified in fucking it up. Yeah. And I'm sure that there are some folks that would feel justified in fucking them up, meaning the white people. Sure. Even if it's not the building, it's like, nope, you're white and uh, you are the oppressor. And in order for revolution to happen, blood must spill. Yes. Um, I want to yeah. uh, I want to bring up the personal responsibility aspect of self-defense. Um, mm -hmm. We've talked a, a good amount about that with um, on our podcast about jujitsu and why we both like Gracie jujitsu and practicing self-defense and um excuse me that responsibility is in is a big part of why we would much prefer to never fight you know um because it, it is a big responsibility like being able to handle yourself in a situation you you have to be able to control the situation. Otherwise, it gets out of hand. The reason people get hurt in fights is because they don't know what they're doing. Or there's weapons in Or it. one person knows exactly what they're doing. Yeah, and, 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 and doesn't exercise control. Right, right, exactly. And maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they exercise enough control to neutralize and fuck up, but, um, you know, fuck somebody up. But, like, you know, we talked about that Matt Sarah video or that he just, like, mounts that yeah. drunk guy. And it's like Matt Sarah's an amazing grappler and fighter. Like he, he literally could have just killed that guy yep. straight up. And it's like, no, you, you, you have a responsibility to get people out safe. Um, yeah. Ryan Hall, very similar. Yeah. And it's um, yeah. like, th that's a power that people have that I, I, I think it should not be underestimated. And when you invoke that self-defense, it, I mean, hell, even in our own legal system, you can still be charged with manslaughter in self-defense. My dad, hmm. um, one of his uh, close friends in prison, was in prison for um, he did. Some guy came at him um, with like a Paris, like a came at him with like a knife and um, stabbed him. I think once or twice, and it was like a life or death situation. And in the moment, he grabbed like a pair of scissors or like a, a fork and ripped out the guy's throat just like stabbed him in the throat and tore his throat out killed him and in total like in the judge even said it was this isn't self-defense but it was excessive he got like 10 years because it was in wow. it was an excessive defense because he could have possibly found another way to to neutralize and like those cases do come up you know it's not sure it isn't just that oh you're threatening me and that i can kill you it's you know sometimes that occurs because you just don't quite know how to read the situation or your, your adrenaline's going and you just kind of go all out but um, part of knowing how to handle yourself is to not allow it to get that far that's part of the right. responsibility i think that you you know people bear and um 
Because so that's a great example of the importance of the concept itself. Yeah. Meaning, if one is to invoke self-defense in a situation, you must also accept the responsibility that comes with claiming self-defense. Yeah, it's not. It's not like this invisibility cloak you can just put on and go do whatever the fuck you want. It isn't like right. you know. I I have self-defense. No one can touch me. You know, it's not a suit of armor and you can just go be a prick like or an asshole and just kind of take whatever it's no, it, it um, what's the, that line from Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man with a great power comes great responsibility. Right. You know, it, it's, it's that notion over and over again. And it, um, there is a power to this, to self-defense, right? You, you're, you're being threatened. So there's like a power dynamic shift where someone is able to overpower or at least to trying to and so that's scary but and then your call to it especially if you're well versed in self-defense is to meet it and maybe do just enough to neutralize and know how to control that and what you're dealing with when you're dealing with uh, say the social justice movement and really it's, it's academics this is where I would focus put my focus is, is the academics is they're masters of words so they're the masters of self-defense with words. Like that's the key here. Is that that's so we're, we've talked a lot about word words and manipulation of words and how words are used and um, guilt and all, lack of redemption, like all these things. This is all self-defense mechanisms that they're using as a way to gain the power that they want. Like it, it's it, it's very easy to break it down, right? It, 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 it but it's an abuse of the power it's missing the responsibility it's missing the responsibility and that's why you see the tyrannical lack of humor aspects of it you see the no room for other people to talk aspects of it it's because they they've discovered that um and i mean another way you could put it is victimhood mentality that isn't quite the same as self-defense and i don't really want to go too far into that because i haven't studied i haven't went down that rabbit hole yet but um i think that's kind of the the pr campaign that they're using to describe self-defense. I, th I think that might actually be um, why that's used so much. Is because if you're a victim, then you can practice self-defense to defend yourself, right? Right. Otherwise you die. And so, um, or you don't really take any agency in your own self. You're, and so, yeah. It, and ironically, the, the, the movement seems to impose upon everyone of a black or brown skin color that victimhood and lack of, lack not, of not only responsibility but autonomy it's very degrading it's in, it's hugely degrading it's it's treating this enormous group of individuals as one homogeneous victim pool so and that's just fucking disrespectful the, Yes and no. So um, I agree it's disrespectful, and I agree that it's um, it's insulting. And uh, but here's something to consider. So that's all, none of that's good. Like being a victim and being victimized constantly, and not having any control. All that kind of stuff is obviously bad. And so it it does provide a certain narrative that um, has consequences, and like the ones we just discussed. But As it's been redefined, um, who's the only people who can um, be racist? It's people with power and privilege. 
privilege plus power. Um, that naturally in our current um, patriarchy removes all white people from being able to experience racism. Who are the only people who can actually see and experience racism? Well, that's a result of that. Um, it, it, it's people of color. So they have, they still do retain some power under this um, line of logic. And the power is to identify racism and to see it and to point it out and call it out. There's a power in that. And, but what happens with that power if you live in a world where the only lens with which you view the world is through race and is predicated on power? Who are the people who have both? Right? And so I, 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 I'm hesitant to say that um, it's completely and an utterly um, insulting and... Um, and whatnot, because I think that the, underneath all of that is a hidden layer of of power that um, only a few people are really pushing for. Because, like, well, yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Those are the people that are disrespecting yeah. other black and brown people well, by claiming yeah. that uh, you know, first of all, they're all victims, mm -hmm. um, and the, and I'll make the distinction that. Uh, there's a difference between being a victim and uh, having unfair shit happen to you. Yes. I mean, I'll absolutely ex accept that virtually every black and brown person has had some bullshit come their way. Mm -hmm. Not denying that in any way, shape, or form. But to uh, force upon them this framework of being a victim is, is like I said, it's disrespectful. It... it removes each individual's ability to um, to react in their own way, to yeah. respond in their own way, their own power to affect their own lives. Nope, sorry, you're just black and brown, so you're fucked, you're a victim. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's just rude. It, no, it is, and like I said, I actually agree, and my, my pushback was simply to point out that um, all of that is true within a current liberal Western democracy like a, a with, within the way that we a meritocracy right how we view the world currently as a civilization as a culture all of what you said is right but the people we're referring to the literature we're referring to the scholarship doesn't a doesn't think that that's the correct way to view the world and wants to remove it and change it and so underneath the the the, the changes that are being pushed None of that is true, and all of the power is being given. And that's the weird thing, is it telling someone that they have no autonomy over themselves because of their skin color, which is racist just in, in, in general by saying because of your skin color, yep. you automatically perceive this thing. Um, and it's the reverse, too, I think, by telling, you know, say, white people that they're always guilty or that they're inherently this or that, like this, this racial essentialism. Um, but through a lens of where race is what matters primary and power is the ultimate goal of the game. The only people who can see race and have the power to see it are the ones who would be at the top. And so it, it, it fits within that narrative very clearly. It's just that because they're looking at a, a completely different narrative, I think people don't, people don't make the connection because it sounds illogical. It's like you, you're yeah, just saying yeah. that 30% of the population in the U S as an example is 
basically can't do anything for themselves, which is fucking wrong. And yep. it's like it's also kind of rude to say that to them. Like it's disheartening. It's like you have at least some control. Um, yeah. But under a different lens, un- looking at the world a different way, um, you might as well just be saying all of you should have the power. You know, and that's scary. That, that's that's yeah. a terrifyingly that's a terrifying hidden message. Right. That. Of course, it's not really talked about too much, and it's also a hard sell to make. Like, it's a hard argument to you have to really get into the theory, and you have to really break down how the logic function or the lack of logic works and where it diverges from what you and I would consider rational thought. Um, because it's not really the rational way to think about things, exactly. All right, so let's let's kind of uh recap this a little bit. Um, we spent quite a bit of time talking about, you know, what happened at Evergreen and how that is analogous to what we're seeing in society today. Yeah. Um, I think some of the important takeaways are being able to identify some of these tricks and tools that this movement is using um, in the name of justice, but in a way that is anything but. Um, you know, we talked about the redefinition of words which is uh, incredibly powerful and incredibly concerning Um, they move a lot of this through our current systems by way of uh, Trojan horse proposals Mm -hmm. um, meaning just really long and dry proposals that nobody actually reads which is a common political tactic that that they are taking up Um, they are also increasing the cost of opposing their ideas by way of social pressure rather than intellectual merit. So they're not going to argue the logic of any of these ideas. They're just going to publicly shame you and attempt to cancel you, which as we are seeing is incredibly powerful, incredibly effective and- Authoritarian. To the root- it is. It's it's bullying at best and authoritarian at worst, and that is uh, happening as we speak. Uh, we also talked about what happens when you try to redefine some really important contextual words. The example we gave being self-defense, because that justifies actions that normally would never be justified. Uh, so to hijack a concept like that is and uh, is currently quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we can also acknowledge that a lot of the people in this movement really just kind of signed on for the label. You know, they they didn't read the whole thing. They didn't do a lot of research on who these people are. They just figure, hey, racism is bad, so let's fight racism, which is a very natural and uh, noble instinct they're just not getting what was on the label and they're effectively just being used as tools like you said when they try to line up all the white folks to block the police um, that is an example of the types of things that are being done to uh, to force white people to take the heat just because they're white it's also another example of redefinition of words so these are all allies Right. right. Um, normally, if you're an ally of someone, you're equal to them and you're working together for a shared goal. Right. So, right. like as an example, um, 
you know, uh, allying the U.S. allying with like you know Britain to stop Germany in World War in both wars, you know, whatever, um, that sort of thing. Um, neither has power over the other. It's a mutual. It's a mutual thing, right? Um, right. But within the movement, but, what you see is that it, allies are very clearly subordinate. Yep. Um, yeah, that's that's a huge key. If you are being forced to be subordinate under the guise of being an ally, if you are required to be subordinate in order to be considered an ally, yeah. then you are not an ally. Well, no, very true. Because yeah, it, and yeah. I've actually read um, a couple of different places. I'm forgetting them offhand, but where um, allyship was either compared to or used along with the phrase, the word accomplice. Mm, yeah. Um, or synonymous with accomplice. So if you're an ally, you're an accomplice. Yeah. Um, which is, accomplice is specifically used to describe someone who helps someone else break the law. Like that's right. what it's used for. So the assumption is that allies should be prepared to break the law for the movement, um, which is interesting, right? That That's what... Um, you you could look at mafia to to break down like what the lower level people do for the mafia dons who don't generally actually break that many laws themselves right they just run an organization that breaks laws and so yep. they they yep. end up going down of course because they run it but very rarely are they doing the the dirty work themselves because they've got other things to do but um, because that is an authoritarian model yes and yeah what we are seeing is authoritarian yeah. Um, in an episode soon, we should uh, both break this down, and then I'd also like to spend some time breaking down um, uh, authoritarian uh, tendencies amongst uh, both sides of the political aisle, uh, Democrats and Republicans. Trump, it'd be a pretty easy one. We could spend a small amount of time on him because he's got a lot of tendencies that are authoritarian. Um, as do a lot of human beings. I mean, the whole point yeah. of being aware of authoritarianism is the understanding that that is part of our human nature, yeah. right? Power is intoxicating and a whole lot of people are going to want to get power. And the more they get, then the more that they can be corrupted yeah. and, and I, act in authoritarian ways. I'd so love to uh, to sit down though and break break down. As I as I've looked a little bit into the the things that, you know, historians and whatnot look at for like what are the similarities between authoritarian leaders in governments and regimes and there's a lot of commonalities and mm -hmm. as i'm as i read through and do some research i read through all the commonalities and i'm like oh both of our political parties do this all the time oh yeah. they do this too oh this is what the social justice movement does oh trump does this every four hours um Oh, I'm pretty sure Nancy Pelosi's done this like three times in the last week. And it ju it's just <laughs> a laundry list of like every politician is just engaging in like a, a bunch of these things. And that's bad. Even if we have a tilt towards it, it's like that's still bad. Like these are our politicians. These are our leaders. Like they, we, we can't be having leaders that engage repetitively with um, authoritarian ideological beliefs. Like that's a problem, and I see it on Absolutely. I see it on both the right and the left. And so this isn't just, like we talk a lot about the left, in part because we're both tilted a little left. And so I, for me personally, I feel like it's more my job to to poke at my own side than it is to poke at the other side. But um, it's also 
something we're both interested in myself being interested in communism but the the right does it too like the authoritarian right's easier i think to spot but um because it tends to devolve into uh national like ethno-nationalism but um I mean, we also. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not news. This is this yeah. is why the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights were such revolutionary documents because some really fucking smart people, flawed but smart, yeah. um, came together with the understanding of where that leads and did their damnedest to create a system that um, prevents authoritarianism from taking over. And, you know, all things considered, shaky as it's been, they did a pretty dang good job. Well, I think the big issue, um, and like I said, we should do a podcast on this. We can go some deeper into it. But what it does is that because there, there have been countries that have actually basically word for word used our constitution and still devolved into authoritarian regimes. Um, yeah. it, near as I can tell the main reason because it's it, it's one of the better documents that's ever been written for governments like it's great but it's not yeah. it doesn't do everything and it's not supposed to there's a lot of holes um, what it's supposed to do though is offer like a framework and then humans get together and they develop social norms and political norms and then we don't violate those and those political norms that we and social norms that we develop are what actually cr finish the frame so that authoritarians don't come into power. Because that's like in Venezuela and Peru and some other Argentina, some other places, that's what happened, is that they had yeah. similar documents, but there's some things we, you know, and we've seen this over the years with presidents, to Bush is a good example of like utilizing more power than, or Cheney, maybe Dick Cheney's the better example, utilizing more power than they probably should have. Not really illegally. There's nothing I don't think it was really in the laws that said that what they did was illegal, but it was very clearly a push further than what should have been done. And I could be wrong sure. on that because I don't know too much about the history there. But um, my point is that people need to be able to work together. And that's that's the issue yeah. is that as we see the pol polarity, um, there's too much ambiguity in how our society, like the the Constitution and our laws function. There's, there's too much that's not written about. And as there should be, because we can't we can't have every law covered that if we don't talk, then someone's just going to show up and just take what the fuck they want. Yeah, well, and, you know, of course, the, the founding fathers couldn't predict the future. They yeah. didn't know from iPhones and Twitter. So I, I believe it was Ben Franklin who said that the um, I think it's either like the, the Declaration or maybe the Bill of Rights, whatever, uh, should be rewritten every 19 years. Okay, yeah. Um, or, or something very similar to that effect, but basically have the understanding that this is not the final product. Not only can we amend it, but we should probably just rewrite the whole damn thing uh, every so often. Well, yeah, I mean, think about it this way. Like, you know. when the initial Constitution was written, there wasn't a term limit for presidents. Yeah. Right? Like, that literally wasn't passed until, I think, like, f three or four years after FDR ran for his fourth term. Because he served yeah. three, and then I think he either lost or I think he died before his the fourth term. Um, and then afterwards, people were like, whoa, this is bad. We need to have term limits. Three is too many. Two is enough. Because George Washington did two terms and was like, that's all it should be. I want to set a good president, precedent. And then everyone just kind of followed his lead, even though there was nothing stopping them. And so, right. like... You know, you think about authoritarians, what do they do? They keep power for a long time. And we have a constitution that didn't even specify how long you could be in power. And it's like, that's right. ripe for an authoritarian. But 
what happened is the people in power at the beginning were like, no, we need to have, we need to self-impose limits. We need to show self-restraint. And if we can do that enough over enough time, for over a period of time, then our answer, you know, generations or the generations after us will also emulate this and it'll become a social norm and a political norm. And then we won't have to worry about it. Right. And um, which is brave. It would have just been easier, I think, to put in term limits and just anyone tries to remove them. That's the dictator. But right. It's it. Well, as we're seeing, social norms do not uh, do not hold very much sway anymore. No, neither do the political ones. I mean, that's <laughs> refer to Donald J. Trump. Yeah, like I mean, he, he broke all the social norms. He broke were. all the political norms. That's why people are freaking out. Is because that's one of the things yeah. is the authoritarian tendencies is breaking down those those political norms. Yeah. You know, and um, people are like, "What the fuck are you doing? We've been doing it this way for 150 years." And it's like, so maybe someone needs to do that. However. It's gonna. What do you say? We write some of this shit down. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like he's definitely yeah. upsetting the apple cart, and it's scary. It's and yeah. Anyways, um, that's something I think we should spend some some more time on at some point in the future, um, because it's fascinating to see the tendencies on both sides. Um, Brett actually said something in um, in his interview. Um, the how the magic trick is done. He said both left and right are confused about different things. Um, and then I think he went on to mention that they're, or I guess my point would be that they're both confused about how to properly act and how to move forward. And so you see mm -hmm. all this, all, all the norms that we've dealt with, we've had for a long time get violated because I feel like they just don't really know exactly what it is they're trying to do or what they want. And you throw a wrench, you throw these wrenches in and all of a sudden they're doing things that we wouldn't have done 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, 80 years ago, even. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting, interesting problem. Yeah, for sure. But all right, dude, well, I think we got some good info on this one. Yeah. We're, um, we're going to be at about, uh, two hours and 45 minutes. So, okay. A longer podcast is a good one. All right. Well, I guess we better call it then. Sweet. Well, uh, thank you. Congratulations to the folks still listening. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, this has been podcast episode number 18. Um, if you're listening to this, it is probably either close to or just after New Year's. So uh, I hope you guys have a good twenty end of the 2020 year and a good start to the 2021 year. Yeah. Peace, everybody. All right. Take care.